So what typically happens in the weight loss process that people misperceive as the slowing of metabolism is actually a drop in non-exercise energy expenditure. You know, in the nerd circles, we call it non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT. Taking a diet break doesn't mean going full YOLO. For the folks who don't know, that means you only live once. A diet break is the understanding that you're going to basically return to non-YOLO maintenance levels. All body composition assessment methods have their strengths and limitations. The only real way you're going to come close to accuracy is something like a four compartment model. When I say measuring body composition, you never really measure body composition. <laughs> it's a an educated wild guess. The only way you can measure body composition is by dissection or chemical analysis after you put someone in a blender, which is well, that would have dreadful side effects. In today's episode, I sit down with nutrition researcher Alan Aragon, one of the pioneers of evidence-based nutrition in the fitness industry. We focus on body composition, what it is and why it matters, using nutrition to improve body composition with specifics on calories, protein, fats, carbohydrates, and alcohol, the benefits of resistance training, supplementation to support body composition goals, and plenty more. It's long, so feel free to use the timestamps on Apple and Spotify or chapters on YouTube to skim to the parts of most interest to you. And just as a quick side note, off-air, Alan and I discussed the ideal body fat percentage for the average man and woman, but left this out of our recording. While this varies from study to study, a general rule of thumb is a body fat percentage of 11 to 22% for men and 22 to 33% for women within the general population. Enjoy. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones. And I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products 
being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. We were just saying off air. I feel like we we just did a bit of a mini podcast actually. <laughs> a little bit. In the lead up to to this episode. It's raining here in LA, believe it or not. and slowed us down a little bit. But uh, you and I have, well, we've traded tweets and Instagram DMs back and forth for five, six, maybe more years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this one's a long time in the coming. Yep. And, uh, or in the making, I should say. And... You know, I wanted to get you on for a very specific reason. I've done nearly 300 episodes on this show. And in those episodes, I've touched on things like the benefits of maintaining strength as you age and how protein affects that and uh, weight loss and obesity. But I've never had a dedicated episode on all things body composition. And when I, when I look out and think of all of the kind of thought leaders and researchers in this space, I see you at, right at the top of that list in terms of being able to help us sort of traverse that landscape, right, where there are a lot of myths and it can be highly confusing for people who have a goal of improving their body composition, be that losing fat, building muscle, or a combination of the two. So I'm looking forward to, to diving into all of those things with you. Perhaps- Great. Perhaps just for anyone who's coming across you now for the first time, give us a little bit of a background. Why why the interest in body composition, sort of evidence-based fitness, and how did you end up in this space? Okay, so about 15 years ago, when guys like myself and... Well, okay, we'll go back 20 years, (laughs) 20 years ago. Uh, In the magazines, there was, in in the fitness magazines, there began to be this push towards citing sources, citing scientific sources. And I would say that a gentleman named Will Brink was one of the first guys to lead the charge in citing the peer-reviewed literature when he's writing an article on protein or muscle or this or that. And then... It just, once the internet happened, about, uh, I would say about 15 years ago on the, what we used to know as the the forums or the message boards, like pre-social media era, um, then people started having a little bit more intellectual discussions about these topics of gaining muscle, losing fat, improving performance, and so... Uh, it became less and less of a matter of, okay, who is the best looking person in the room? Who is the most jacked guy in the room? It started becoming a matter of, all right, is there, 
any sort of scientific basis for that? Or are you just relaying experience and anecdote? And so this was 15 years back. And so I would say that myself, Will Brink, Lyle McDonald, uh, were really kind of at the tip of the spear, bringing the, in quotes, evidence-based information movement into the fitness and nutrition sphere. Were a lot of your early hypotheses and, and the colleagues of yours that you just mentioned there, were they informed by the fitness industry, by bodybuilders and people that were actually you know, implementing certain protocols back then? You know, Maybe we call it bro science. Um, was that where a lot of these hypotheses were kind of generated from? So, so that is true that a lot of the information that was coming in from from that era was from the trenches and was bro science based and what's cool is that a lot of those questions and a lot of those those long standing traditional protocols that that lore and mythology we actually got a chance my my colleagues and I and and others in the research space got a chance to test some of those in quote theories test some of those hypotheses like for example the post-exercise anabolic window, um, fed versus fasted cardio for fat loss, and the anabolic window post-exercise for muscle gain. And we also got to look at things like meal frequency, its effect on body composition, um, pre-exercise protein versus post-exercise protein, and then we meta-analyzed a, a bunch of research as well and came down with um, you know a, a more solid evidence-based. So like when we talk about evidence-based fitness, it's not just a matter of, okay, what's in PubMed. It's more like what's in PubMed and let's cross-check that with what we're observing in the field and let's have an honest perspective of what the gray areas in our knowledge are. And that's where we kind of push forward with research. Have you seen through your research a lot of let's say uh, protocols or things that were being put forward in that era have been somewhat falsified through research or and now would be considered myths yes 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 for sure okay so starting with this is a very 90s like early 2000s thing so your audience who's like 35 and up it's really going to resonate with but um this is the post-exercise anabolic window of opportunity, in quotes. And um, this is something that um, was put forth by John Ivey and Robert Portman in the early 2000s. And so those guys were really leading the charge in terms of recovery nutrition for the purpose of gaining muscle mass. And so when they put their book out called Nutrient Timing, this was a 2004 little paperback with somebody hitting a side chest, um, you know, bodybuilding pose on, on the cover. Chest. It's like, <laughs> it was uh, a little bit ironic that they used that for the cover because a lot of um, the research that they're relaying related to expediting glycogen resynthesis in endurance settings. And so indeed, for the purpose of restocking glycogen as fast as possible, there is a post-exercise anabolic window. 
to where if you delay carbohydrate intake, you delay glycogen resynthesis. And in endurance events that exhaust muscle glycogen more than once in a day, then you indeed would be compromising your glycogen status and then your performance. Um, and so there was a leap of faith that was made that said, well, look, there's a post-exercise anabolic window of opportunity if we can consume protein and or amino acids with carbohydrate. And if you consume that mix within 30 to 60 minutes post-exercise, then you can expedite your muscle growth. And so that was the hypothesis that stood for a good 10 years before enough studies rolled out to the point where my colleagues and I took a look at the evidence and said, you know, this post-exercise anabolic window theory saying that if you don't time your quickly absorbed protein and carbs within 60 minutes post-exercise, then you're going to compromise your gains. So there are studies that have like randomized people into one group where they are consuming a certain number of carbohydrates and, and protein or grams of carbohydrates and protein in that anabolic window versus another group that consume the same amount of carbohydrates and protein over a day, but less in that anabolic window or none. That's right. That's right. We first did a meta-analysis on that body of studies to examine where the weight of the evidence is leaning on this anabolic window theory. And we found that <clears throat> as long as total daily protein amounted to, it was one point, roughly 1.6, grams per kilogram of body weight, then timing protein within that magic uh, anabolic window it didn't make any difference in terms of muscle size and strength gains in longitudinal trials. So in trials that were not just merely measuring short-term muscle protein synthesis response. And so uh, we ran that meta-analysis, we published the meta-analysis, and we got a lot of pushback from um, a lot of the community who is really emotionally attached to the post-exercise anabolic window model. What were the critiques? Like I imagine one of the critiques could be, well, are these studies sensitive enough to detect the differences? Or if the trials were longer, would this make a difference over, say, six or 12 months, as opposed to like a short sort of two or four week trial? Yeah. Th those are the, the standard criticisms that would apply more broadly to almost anything in the area. But um, some of the more astute folks looking at our meta-analysis said, well, out of the 13 studies, only five of those studies equated protein between the conditions, whereas the rest of the studies really were not measuring timing because the protein treatment or the protein timed treatment was just merely protein added to the intake of the experimental group versus not added within you know, any time frame. And so therefore, with those five studies that did equate protein, we sub-analyzed that and found that it it still didn't right. matter. So what about this this idea that you need a certain amount of protein and lutein to kind of trigger muscle protein synthesis and that over and above that it doesn't just keep increasing, it kind of hits a ceiling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that if you want if you were trying to optimize for muscle growth, it would be preferential to say distribute 120 grams of protein out over four meals across a day. Mm -hmm. So you get kind of a, a spike in MPS, it comes down, you get another one, comes down and so forth. And greater, I guess, area under the curve over, over a day. 
there's is there any validity or truth to that distribution once you have total protein equated for is there any benefit to to distributing that over more meals yes and then there's that the big answer is yes if you're talking muscle growth um but for other goals like muscle retention the body appears to be very resilient and not very persnickety about how you distribute things now before I go into that, I, I just remembered one of the big criticisms about our um, meta-analysis looking at the post-exercise you know, anabolic window. One of the big criticisms is that, well, you, know, you, you need to make sure you time the protein because our parameters for the meta-analysis, we looked at studies that either <clears throat> left a, a minimum of an hour of protein neglect pre and post. Uh, I'm sorry, a minimum of two hours of protein neglect pre and post. Okay, so no protein two hours before going in and doing a resistance training. Yeah, and like then no that. protein two hours after. Right, right. So, so that was um, like there was some criticism there, and and people were saying, well, you need to narrow it down and and test immediate protein post exercise. So. The meta-analysis that we did, it compared protein that was timed or ingested within one hour, either pre or post-exercise. And so those were the experimental conditions and the control conditions were protein consumed a minimum of two hours away from the training bout, away from the resistance training bout. And that's where we saw that there was no difference in muscle strength and size increase as long as total daily protein was right around 1.6, 1.7 grams per kilogram of body weight. And so, as I mentioned, we got a bunch of criticism because we're looking at, you know, meta-analyses, yeah, they, they show you the aerial view, but you're pooling together a bunch of different designs, a bunch of different protocols and outcomes, and you're essentially trying to pigeonhole a single answer out of a bunch of heterogeneous data. And so we decided, why don't we test this anabolic window theory in a randomized controlled trial where we just control the variables and set it up so that we can eliminate a lot of the, a lot of the questions that are around this thing. Because the way that we looked at it, was like this. Most resistance trainees whose main goal is muscle growth, they don't train fasted. And so what happens in a lot of these a lot of these studies is they take fasted subjects and they feed them either this protein time stuff or they do the protein neglect, but they what they never do is they never try to mimic the real world where there's a pre-exercise meal going in. Right, so you're going into that workout with some amino acids and more carbohydrate av availability. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Which so, is a completely different context. It is. And and so with our design, we of course there's limitations to um every study that you do cuz you can only kind of measure things one at a time. So we tested immediate pre-exercise protein consumption with immediate post-exercise protein consumption. And this is in the context of resistance training. And so we figured that 
if there's this post-exercise anabolic window that's 30 to 60 minutes post-exercise where you have this uh, glowing opportunity to expedite recovery and expedite gains, then it would be a matter of protein availability or amino acid availability in the blood rather than when you ingest the stuff. Because whenever you ingest protein, even the fastest types of protein, like let's say whey, whey protein, um, amino acid levels are not going to peak in the blood after, let's say, a good size, like a 40-gram dose. They are not going to peak in blood circulation until 45, 60 minutes after you ingest the bolus of protein. So we figured that, hey, if there is an, an anabolic window post-exercise, immediately post-exercise, then maybe we can nail it if we have the subjects consume the protein right before the training bout. And who knows, maybe that might outperform immediate right, post-exercise. So time it perfectly. Yeah. The stimulus with the protein. Right. And we already did the meta-analysis showing that, okay, if this all might not matter as long as you're consuming total daily protein at at least 1.6 grams per kilogram. But we went through with the experiment anyway, and lo and behold, there was no significant difference, no meaningful difference between the immediate pre-exercise protein group and the immediate post-exercise protein group. And so um, that kind of put a nail in the coffin, in my opinion, to the idea that there's this post-exercise anabolic window of opportunity. But even then, when you look at the studies from the late 90s, early 2000s, looking at muscle sensitivity to protein feeding. When a single resistance training bout can sensitize muscle tissue to protein feeding for 24 to 48 hours after the resistance training bout. And so what I mean by that is you can feed protein 24 to 48 hours after a resistance training bout and see a higher level of muscle protein synthesis than um, if there was no resistance training bout. So this so-called anabolic window of opportunity is more like an anabolic garage door or an anabolic barn door, as it's been called. Right. So if you take care of total protein... And mm -hmm. you get to that 1.6 or 1.7 grams yeah. per kilogram. Is that is that based on your total body weight or your ideal body weight? That's a damn good question. Um, and so the hierarchy of importance as far as protein intake goes is definitely at the top of the hierarchy. You would get the vast majority of your results from hitting the total for the day. And then a distant second priority would be the distribution of that protein or, or rather, you know, the doses and the amounts and the spread, the patterning of it. Okay. So you could yeah. still squeeze out a some of some of those last few drops of water out of the towel with you distribution. With, with distribution. Yes, you could. And then maybe third um, in the hierarchy of importance for protein would be exactly where it is surrounding the training bout. So I would... I would uh, hypothesize that the distribution across the course of the day is even more important than exactly where it is relative to the training bout. So going back to your question about how do we program protein intake? Do we do it based on total body weight or do we do it based on lean body mass? And okay, technically in a perfect world, we would do it based on lean body mass. 
But in the real world, measuring lean body mass is problematic because there are error margins associated with attempting to assess what actual body composition is. And so uh, that's the issue there. And so what circumvents the problem of trying to grapple with the limitations of body composition assessment is you actually hinted towards it, ideal body weight or target body weight. So somebody's target body weight or ideal body weight is kind of a proxy for somebody's lean body mass with a little bit of... So if someone's, let's there. say, 100 kilograms and they want to get to 85 kilograms, mm -hmm. they're using that 85 multiplying that by 1.6 or 1.7 yep. and then that's the mm -hmm. their total protein intake and the reason for that is because your protein requirement is based on your lean mass not not the amount of body fat you have that's right that's right okay. and in the literature when they spit out these figures in the results like 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight they're using normal weight subjects so in the majority of the protein literature that has found 1.6 to be sort of this uh, catch-all golden target where positive clinical effects converge with positive body composition and performance effects, mainly looking at normal weight subjects. And um, it's actually kind of rare in the literature to base protein on lean body mass. So we're kind of limited in that aspect. Right. And so if we're taking care of that total protein intake and let's say for example we do like training in the morning fasted are you saying that if if the day prior we reached our protein target there is sufficient amino acids that are still circulating in our system such that we're not leaving any kind of benefits that are up for grabs we're not leaving any of that on the table by going into that training session fasted there are not enough studies looking at that question simon um there is an acute study that was done looking at uh, anabolic signaling post-exercise with either a fasted resistance training bout or a fed resistance training bout. And it was a high carbohydrate meal prior to the resistance training bout or nothing. And then the post-exercise meal. And so what happened with this is this was Del DK and colleagues, it was a 2010 study. They actually found a higher level of anabolic signaling in the fasted resistance training group um, than in the fed resistance training group. And so apparently the body scrambles to try to go into an anabolic rebound, if you will, if you train fasted. And so therefore it still appears that the total daily protein intake by the end of the day would okay would be so there's some know, type the of compensatory factor. effect there that's right it, there is a compensatory effect apparently now I, a caveat i want to throw in there is that um there has been research looking at fed versus fasted resistance training performance and the fasted resistance training performance is uh not as good as fed resistance training performance and so when you compromise performance then you can compromise adaptations down the line right so if that negatively affects your training volume that's right that that could affect the overall muscle protein synthesis and strength gains that someone's yes. getting 
Yep, yep. Okay, you got it. Right, I'm surprised that hasn't been tested over over a kind of medium term trial. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's there's one study where the breakfast skippers did not do as well as breakfast eaters for resistance training performance. Uh, there could be another study by now, but it's odd, you know, with these type of subjects because. And this is maybe looking at things a little bit cynically because there's no money to recoup from a product or something like that <laughs> at the end of the rainbow, then you don't necessarily see uh, these type of studies cranked out. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Are you training at a moderate to high intensity, be it cardio or lifting weights and sweating profusely? If so, your performance and recovery will likely benefit from an optimal rehydration strategy, which means not only replacing the fluid you've lost, but also the sodium. Now you can do this the old school way with table salt, as discussed in my episode with Dr. Stacy Sims, or you can go down an arguably more convenient path and use a well-formulated and low-calorie electrolyte product like Element. Each sachet of Element contains 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. My personal recommendation is to use one-third of a sachet for every hour of moderate to vigorous exercise that leaves you feeling a sweaty mess. Lately, I've been in fairly cold weather myself, so I've been enjoying Element's chocolate salt flavor, which I add to my morning coffee. Stay hydrated with Element. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase via drinkelement.com forward slash Simon. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash Simon. And if you don't like it, Element will give you your money back. Just email them, which means it's completely risk-free. Try today by going to D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash Simon. That link can also be found in the show notes. Speaking of products, I laughed 
the other day I saw a Brad Schoenfield, I think I sent you that post. You guys yeah. wrote a paper together and mm-hmm. he wrote Save Your Money. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> and right. it was in relation to to amino acids, obviously the building blocks of protein mm-hmm. and whether they have any, I guess, role mm-hmm. in building muscle and strength, whether they can, you know, have some utility and at least you know, his post suggested that there probably isn't a significant benefit from supplementing with BCAAs. Yeah. So, okay. So here's the thing, and this brings up a previous question that you, that you raised about leucine and and protein doses. So, like, how much can you maximize the anabolic effect of a meal based on leucine content or protein content? And so, leucine is the anabolic driver as far as the amino acids go. So you have the essential amino acids being um, the most anabolic set of amino acids. And then of the essential amino acids, you have the branch chain amino acids being the most anabolic driving amino acids. And of those branch chain amino acids, leucine is kind of the kingpin of of it all. Um, There was a recent systematic review that looked at the concept of leucine trigger and leucine threshold. So the leucine trigger is sort of this question of does the speed of saturation or does the speed of peak leucine levels in the blood, does that influence muscle anabolism? Um, And does the actual peak level of leucine in the blood, does that influence muscle anabolism? And so that's like, is, is there some sort of kinetic type of trigger there? that would that we need to strive for in order to maximize acute muscle protein synthesis. So that's the leucine trigger idea. The leucine threshold idea is the question of what dose of leucine results in maximal muscle protein synthesis. And so that's a little bit more of a practical question. And um, it turns out that there's the a split set of data between older subjects and younger subjects. So with younger subjects, there is a less consistent relationship between the actual leucine dose and muscle protein synthesis. So it, it appears that the, you can, like protein per se, the, the dose of protein, regardless of leucine amount, seems to max out muscle protein synthesis in younger adults at a certain dosing threshold which in the majority of the research, it has been roughly 20 to 25 grams, with the exception of McNaughton and colleagues in 2016, who hit the subjects with a high volume, 20 set resistance training bout and saw that 40 grams of protein outperformed 20 grams of protein for raising muscle protein synthesis. So with the exception really of McNaughton and colleagues there, We've mainly seen 20 to 25 grams of protein max out muscle protein synthesis in young subjects. Why is that the exception, not the rule, that study? Because they hit them with 20 sets with a full body training bout. And it's just a lot easier to get subjects to do 8 to 12 sets of, you know, of two exercises, leg extensions and leg presses versus doing the whole, you know, upper body and lower body and racking up 20 sets. It's just a little bit less feasible (laughs) but is that an argument to to say if someone's doing a very high volume training program that they should have more protein i'll tell you what dude there are so many gray areas in the literature 
And there are so many myths based on training protocols that don't necessarily reflect what's going on in the real world. So for example, the McNaughton study where it was 20 sets and they showed a superiority of, and it was like 19% higher muscle protein synthesis with 40 grams of protein post-exercise versus 20 grams. That 20 sets, if you take a look at your own resistance training program and you see, okay, for this day I do four different exercises and I do four sets each. And you see that, okay, well, you're already much higher in terms of training volume than the typical eight to 12-ish sets that have been done historically in resistance training research. And sometimes I'll hit 16 sets, but I was looking at um, the number of sets I did per exercise, or, or rather per training bout, and it's almost always near 20. It's always, it's either, in, it's always in the high teens or low 20s when I count the sets that I do in a resistance training bout. And so I think that when you look at the real world stuff, the idea that we have, that young adults have this muscle protein synthesis limit at 20 to 25 grams of protein, I don't think that applies to people who are doing higher volumes of resistance training. Right, because most of those studies you're saying are, or that finding is informed by studies that were doing eight to 12 sets. Yes. In a session. Right, sometimes sometimes 16. Mm -hmm. um, so it might be yeah. that if someone is doing more volume, they're creating more kind of muscular damage and therefore need more protein to recover? Is that is that the, the hypothesis there, there? there? There appears to be the creation of a, of a bigger of a bigger reservoir <laughs> of re receptivity for uh, muscle protein synthesis. And this raises an interesting question with the older adults too, because it appears that they require about double the protein dose that young people do to max out muscle protein synthesis acutely or on a short-term basis. And so, um, we haven't really even explored the possibility of hitting older subjects with high volume resistance training and seeing what the limits of protein dosing might be to max out muscle protein synthesis. So why is it that older athletes, older adults, I should say, are less sensitive to amino acids and protein? Okay. That question has kind of a complicated answer. And let me start off by saying that in the general population, who's mostly sedentary, what you said is true. Uh, in populations who are trained and highly trained, resistance trained, father time doesn't seem to have uh, much of an effect on receptivity to protein feeding. So when you look at masters athletes, their response to protein feeding, their anabolic response or muscle protein synthesis response is very similar to younger folks. So this might just be a case of the the way that population is living in the, I guess, sedentary lifestyle. Is that is that similar to the story with like metabolism? You know, for, you, for years you hear this idea is as you get older, your basal metabolic rate slows down dramatically. Um, but I've always wondered you know, how true that is. Is it that the amount of energy you're expending 
does go down because your metabolism drops or is it because people are moving less? Yeah, that's, that's a great parallel because it really is true. Um, adults, in order for their resting metabolic rate or their total energy expenditure to go down, they have to be losing lean body mass and they have to be kind of progressively and insidiously, almost imperceptibly moving less year upon year. And that doesn't necessarily happen with uh, certain training populations, certain physically active populations. And so with your question about, you know, what happens to muscle as we get older, like what, what underlies this anabolic resistance in, in people with advanced age? Well, there's two tracks upon which that happens. There's, um, There's chronologically related, there's age related changes, and then there are lifestyle related changes. And, you know, and frankly, it's, it's hard to totally separate the two. So the age related changes really would be a decrease in muscle protein synthesis response that's underlied by changes in endothelial health, endothelial function. And so along with age, the degradation of endothelial health results in a reduced microvascular perfusion of, um, of blood. So reduced blood flow and therefore a reduced insulin sensitivity. So, so less able to get certain nutrients yes amino acids mm -hmm. to the right location to trigger muscle protein synthesis that's right that's right very so broadly speaking when the vascular structure the microstructures when those start to degrade then you have a lower exactly a lower delivery of amino acids to the target tissues in this case skeletal muscle and this would lower the muscle protein synthesis response to both protein feeding and or resistance training that reminds me of a, a study and this is a massive side note looking at cold water immersion after working out yeah and they saw a lower muscle protein synthesis and i think the hypothesis was through a reduction in, in blood flow to the muscle tissue and nutrient delivery that's one of the big parts of of what impairs the muscle anabolic response of, of cold exposure is um vasoconstriction you know, you, you really want to kind of go for vasodilation <laughs> in the post-exercise right. period. And uh, some people would say, Have a okay, beetroot juice. Yeah, have, have beetroot juice or <laughs> wait six hours, you know, before you do your cold plunge. Just keep, keep it separated by six hours or eight hours. But then, like I mentioned, a single resistance training bout sensitizes muscle um, to protein feedings for 24 to 48 hours. There's even one study showing that 72 hours post-exercise, you get increased muscle protein synthesis as a result of a single resistance training bout. And so that's why cold exposure, you know what, man, uh, no matter where you freaking put it, uh, if your main goal in life is to gain muscle as quickly as possible, it's going to be a factor that mitigates it. Now, will it crucially mitigate it? Will it just prevent you from making gains? No, probably not. But we have to acknowledge that it, it's a mitigating factor. Right. So for the majority of people listening to this show, we might not need to be that rigid 
we want to focus on getting the training stimulus is obviously very important, perhaps most important. Mm -hmm. And then what we've spoken about so far before getting into the weeds of protein distribution and how close you know proximity it is mm -hmm. to, to training, just getting your total protein intake over over the day sorted. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's right. And 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 the training stimulus, as you mentioned, I hesitate to call it the most important thing. I would I would concede that it has the largest effect. But um, a lot of folks in the space, especially if they're very exercise focused and exercise biased, they will give all the accolades to the resistance training stimulus and say, ah, oh, protein has got a small effect, you know. It's really the resistance training thing. But I would contend that, look, get them both right, even if the protein effects are smaller than the resistance training effects. And that's how you reach various goals and, and reach um, various positive or favorable clinical outcomes as well. I, I can imagine people taking that position because in the context without the resistance training, if you just increase protein, you know, what do you see? Do you, what happens to muscle protein synthesis? And do you actually see much development of, of muscle tissue and strength? Yeah, it's limited. It, it is definitely limited. And that's been seen meta-analytically, especially in the older population. Um, and it's been seen across populations too. So you need the exercise stimulus to make things happen in terms of muscle size and strength gains. Just circling back to the branch chain amino acids paper that came out. Yes, 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 so, that's right, that's right. So if your total protein over the day is taken care of, mm -hmm. then adding a branch chain amino acid supplement or isolated leucine is not likely to have much of an effect. But what about in the context of, let's say, let's say in the literature, if you look at average protein intakes, you know, there's a bunch of different papers we could point to, but let's say it's around 1.1, maybe 1.2, depending on the population, could be as low as... 0.9 and sort of vegetarian populations in the context of a diet that's not delivering 1.6 grams mm -hmm. of protein per kilogram mm -hmm. is there any would there be any benefit to adding in a, a kind of a, some type of amino acid supplement yeah that that is a super interesting question because there's a lot of gray area there and so what we know what we've seen in the literature is that when young resistance training subjects are consuming a total daily protein intake of 1.6 grams per kilogram, which in imperial terms for, you know, the, the <laughs> for my Yankee, uh, for my fellow Yankees out there. Well, I, I mean, I forget more than 50% of the listeners on this show are based in, in, the, in the United States. So. Okay. They'll, they'll point, be thankful point for seven that. 0.7 grams per pound, you guys. <laughs> and and just, just quickly on that, though, yep. I want to get your, your view on this. You walk into a grocery store in this country. We're in LA. And the front of the bottle usually, you know, if we look at a protein drink, usually has ounces. Right? And you guys measure weight in pounds or mm -hmm. ounces. But yeah. then when it comes to pounds protein, it's on the, on the label, on the same label, that has ounces for the total volume, it has the protein in grams. Yeah, yeah. I've always found that super <laughs> confusing. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a marketing thing, probably. <laughs> it's a labeling thing. People are trying to get their, you know, their 20 grams of protein per meal. And so mm -hmm. so that's kind of blasted out there up front. But yeah, 
in resistance training populations, if you add branched chain amino acid supplementation and or leucine supplementation on top of 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight total for the day, there's no further increases in muscle size and muscle strength. Um, now, as you mentioned, in the general population who may be consuming amounts that are a little bit above the RDA, somewhere between 20, in some cases, 50% above the RDA, like all the way 0.9 to 1.2-ish, 1.3 in, in some in some research publications. But fortunately, unfortunately, the 1.3 reports relate to ideal body weight. It's corrected for ideal body weight. And when you look at actual body weight, it's a little closer to 0.9 to 1.0. But that's a little, little nitpick. Um, for populations who are consuming that amount of protein, then if you're somehow forced to limit your protein to below what's optimal, then supplementing with branched chain amino acids, or even better, all nine essential amino acids, would be uh, beneficial for muscle growth and possibly muscle strength as well. Um, but we don't typically see that need in younger adults. So with older adults, that's where we would see the, uh, the issues with being able to consume enough protein. And in the older adult population, uh, protein intakes are, are commonly right around the RDA, which is not necessarily a good thing if there's frailty involved. So when, when you look at the general sedentary population, most of, or a lot of whom are either overweight or they have obesity, then the RDA for protein is, is fine. However, <laughs> when you're looking at the elderly population where there's a lot of frailty, there's a lot of underweight, then you start seeing uh, more problems with the RDA. Um, I, I want to qualify that statement I just made about the general population with overweight and obesity consuming the RDA. Okay. I still would like to see that population, if they don't have these sort of specialized athletic goals, consuming at least 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, because then good stuff starts happening with body composition, with satiety, with training performance and such. And I think that the 1.6 figure is a very safe figure to call optimal for most, for most goals. And there's some stuff on the fringe, uh, hypocaloric conditions, bodybuilding type goals where we can look at protein that's beyond the norm that's recommended in the literature. This 1.6 seems to be this hard cutoff in the literature, but when you dig deep enough, you see benefits of protein intakes that are beyond 1.6. And some of this, um, some of these studies are observational, some are not. And I think it, it can be worth talking about. You know, right, so people, that's uh, mostly the context of being in a, a sort of severe or moderate calorie deficit. And in that context, increasing protein above 1.6 grams per kilogram in an attempt to kind of attenuate the, the muscle loss or preserve muscle tissue while mm -hmm. your total body weight's going down. Yeah. Um, the theory is this, when you're sustaining hypocaloric conditions, then the body 
doesn't necessarily prioritize the preservation of skeletal muscle because skeletal muscle is very kind of malleable. You can give a bunch of it up and still survive. Whereas other lean tissues that may require protein, they, they need it, it's a do or die situation. And so therefore, in sustained hypocaloric conditions, you would want to, at least in theory, provide an extra reserve of protein to support uh, vital organs. Um, now, I, I will admit that there is not a lot of well-controlled research that compares 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight with a higher amount in hypocaloric conditions in training subjects. Uh, there's only one study out right now. It just came out this year. But the subjects were not necessarily lean, and they were not necessarily athletic. So we, I, I think the jury is still out on that. And observationally, um, there's some interesting stuff. Uh, Hector and Phillips, our, our good buddy Stu. Stu, um, we love him. We, we love Stu. I, I argue with him annually. <laughs> I argue. But you know what? I still love the guy, even though we fight annually. Um, and and if if anybody can hear the construction in the background, it's because we're having such a constructive conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that had to be said. Yeah, of course. And, and so with um with certain hypocaloric conditions and certain uh, specialized physique goals, it appears at least observationally that. Protein intakes substantially beyond 1.6 appear to benefit these goals. Um, and that is a gray area in the literature. And there's an interesting body of literature showing the recomposition phenomenon where muscle is gained or, well, a lot of times we call lean mass muscle. So lean mass is kind of a proxy for muscle because lean mass also includes the water content, water, and glycogen, and not necessarily the contractile protein and elements. And bone as well. And bone. Some people would argue with you that, well, bone is you know part of fat-free mass and not necessarily lean mass. And so, yeah, it gets, it gets a little hairy. But um, for, for things like recomposition, what we see consistently in the literature is that protein intakes that are beyond a gram per pound, so beyond 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight, um, they appear to result in a bias towards fat loss and even an increase in lean mass gain. So by recomp, you're talking about losing fat and gaining muscle at the same time or at least attenuating muscle loss while losing weight? Literally gaining lean mass and losing fat mass at the same time. Is that possible? <laughs> Apparently it is. And, and we hypothesized back in the day that no, that's not possible. We got a dedicated bulk for the muscle gains and we got a dedicated cut for the fat loss. But um, the march of research showed over several studies that, it's, that this recomposition phenomenon is even possible in resistance-trained subjects. But when you look at the body of literature in which recomposition occurs, it's typically in males in the mid to high teens, as far as body fat percent. 
So it doesn't necessarily occur in these athletically lean subjects. And body recomposition in women, it would occur in like the, you know, mid mid 20s, high, high 20s. So the leaner you're getting, the harder it is to preserve muscle tissue as you're losing weight. Okay, so you were saying that the leaner you get, the less margin there is or the less chance for recomposition or the loss of body fat and the simultaneous gain of lean mass or muscle tissue. And that's very true. And and in practical terms, it means that unless you are a beginning trainee with excess body fat, if you're certainly an intermediate, you've been training for a few years and you are past the newbie gain stage. And certainly if, if you're a bit more advanced and you're closer to your potential for muscle size and leanness, then the goal of recomposition is not productive. You do have to choose one thing at a time. But in the body of research that does show recomposition in trained subjects, who once again are not particularly lean, the protein intakes that are common to being associated with recomp are 2.6 to 3.5 grams of protein per kilogram of fat-free mass. Okay, so we're not talking total body mass. So 2.6 to 3.5 grams per kilo of fat-free mass. And this is pretty similar to a systematic review done by Helms and colleagues in 2014-ish, where they found that uh, the protein intakes that were appropriate for supporting the lean mass of lean resistance trained subjects in hypocaloric conditions was 2.3 to 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. So those figures are, are pretty similar. So that's the the kind of exception we're talking about a very specific population here mm. athletes people yeah. that do helms helms training. especially yes the and, helms stuff yes and they're in a calorie deficit and they're in a calorie deficit there seems to be some very interesting things that happen with body composition when you crank protein up beyond the magic 1.6 in resistance training subjects in free living conditions and there is a lot of really interesting work done by Jose Antonio and his colleagues where they've done some crazy, wild and crazy stuff with very high protein feeding and found that this protein seems to, in quotes, disappear. And so what they've done, it, with one eight-week study, they put the subjects on essentially two grams of protein per pound of body weight. So 4.4 grams per kilogram of body weight. It was an eight week study, about uh, roughly uh, eight, 800 grams, uh, I'm sorry, 800 calories of protein above and beyond their habitual diet. And so the habitual diet of these subjects, these were resistance trained, college aged uh, young adults. And Interestingly, their body composition didn't change. So no significant increases in lean mass, no significant change in, in fat mass over the eight weeks while the control group was 
their habitual intake. The experimental group was protein at 4.4 grams per kilogram of body weight. So about double their habitual intake, which was right around a gram per pound. But this is in hypercaloric conditions? Attempted hypercaloric conditions. So the moral of the story with that is if you're trying to gain body weight or even trying to gain muscle mass or, you know, nobody is trying to gain fat mass, but if it's done by specifically just adding protein, at least in free living conditions in resistance training subjects, that's not necessarily going to happen. And the interesting thing about that study is it was replicated four more times, five more times if we count the case study. Um, and this was by raising protein to around three grams per kilogram of body weight. So close to like 1.2 up to 1.5-ish grams per pound. And so when you raise protein from habitual amounts, right around 2.0 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight up to 3.0, 3.0 up to 3.3, 3.5 grams per kilogram of body weight, which would represent roughly 60 to 80 grams of protein above and beyond your habitual diet, just dumping that protein on top of it, nothing happens. So there's some <laughs> diminishing returns. Nothing happens with, with body weight. Um, now, uh, with body composition, which is the super interesting thing. And in one study, in fact, uh, this is by Joey Antonio and his colleagues, recomposition occurred. So what they did was they added an extra 80 to 100 grams of protein to the subject's habitual diets. These are resistance training subjects. And what happened was they ended up losing significant amounts of body fat, but gaining insignificant amounts of lean body mass. And um, that is super interesting because the assignment was to add protein to the diet. So what happens behaviorally is probably different from what the assignment is. So when you add protein to the diet, to a pre-existing pretty high intake, 2.0-ish grams or so per kilogram of body weight, what happens is apparently these, these factors can kind of occur simultaneously in any permutation of these factors. So satiety can go up, uh, <laughs> misreporting your, <laughs> your, your macronutrient intake can also occur. Um, the subjects in the, in the very high protein study, the 4.4 grams per kilo study, they had a tough time sticking to the protocol. They would complain to uh, the, the research staff, man, this sucks. A lot of protein shakes, I imagine. Yes. Yes. A lot of protein powder was used. Uh, I spoke with Joey at a conference and he said that the subjects would complain about sweating while they're sleeping. When you're eating protein Is at that two the thermic effect? Yes. Yes, that apparently so. And um, also what could have happened was the transfer of energy in just translated to more energy out through both um, non-exercise pathways as well as exercise pathways. So it's not like the extra protein calories actually disappeared. It could have been a combination of under-reporting I'm sorry, over-reporting protein intake and also um, increased energy expenditure through pathways that we, we can't really 
put a finger on. Mm. Okay, let's close the loop on a couple of things here and get super practical. Yeah. <laughs> Which is always yeah. good, I think. <laughs> sure. Uh, so for this population we're speaking about here, people that are, let's say, athletes or they have their experienced resistance trainers, they're in a calorie deficit and they're listening to this and thinking, okay, I just heard Alan say 2.3 grams to 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. Yes, that's Helms and colleagues. Yes, and let's say mm-hmm. they 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 say, okay, well, and I'm gonna st- I'm gonna Stu would argue that that's observational and not okay experimental. Right. Hi, so, Stu. So there's a there's there's a little bit still there up for debate. It sounds like uh, open to interpretation. But let's say someone wanted to set their protein target at three grams per kilogram of fat-free mass, right? How do you establish what your fat-free mass is? What's the the kind of accurate and most accessible way? That's, that's a big question and it's a big problem actually because even things like DEXA have these error margins that are really disappointingly large. 4.9% error margins, like ah. Um, you, you just simply... I would rather just have people use a proxy for lean mass like target body weight or ideal body weight. But if you must attempt to um, estimate body composition, DEXO would probably be kind of a gold standard to to do that. But then again, if you were to do DEXO, you're, <laughs> you would want to do it maybe like three three times in a row, three days in a row and maybe get the average of those three days because there can be differences from day to day, unfortunately, with DEXA. Um, In 2017, I I wrote the ISSN position stand on diets and body composition and looked at the different methods of, when I say measuring body composition, you never really measure body composition. (laughs) You ballpark estimate it. It's a, it's a, an educated wild guess. The only way you can measure body composition is by dissection or chemical analysis after you put someone in a blender, which is, well, that would have dreadful side effects. So um, you pick the method that is most feasible for the individual in terms of cost and accessibility. And you just use that and say a little prayer that it, it's close to reality. Because all body composition assessment methods have their strengths and limitations. The only real way you're going to come close to accuracy is something like a four compartment model, which is really only accessible through university labs and very specialized um, facilities. So the person using skin folds and the person using bioelectrical uh, impedance analysis, hopefully it's multi-frequency, multi-frequency BIA, and the person using DEXA, they're all on a relatively similar playing field as far as estimating the uh, body composition within reasonable error margins. So, um, yeah, that's the unexciting answer for that. What would you say to an athlete, though, if you had an athlete sitting in front of you? It sounds like this this concept or idea of measuring fat-free mass, there are some issues with regards to accuracy, mm-hmm. probably accessibility as well for certain individuals. Yeah. You mentioned before ideal body weight. Mm-hmm. So would you just say target this amount of protein yeah. based on your ideal body weight? Yes. And it's much better to overdo protein even by a lot 
then to underdo protein even by a little because the 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 downsides of overdoing protein are almost non-existent um, versus uh, underdoing protein where the downsides can can have a much higher impact for the athlete and for the dieter. And um, I would say that the, the only downside of overdoing protein is if it impacts your carbohydrate allotment and you are a performance athlete who needs a certain minimum amount of carbohydrate in order to hit certain performance levels. Yeah, which makes me think about low carbohydrate diets. Yes. <laughs> and how you feel about those from a performance point of view. You know, have there been studies looking at let's start with building muscle. Can someone build muscle as well if they're, you know, adopting a ketogenic diet? versus a high-carbohydrate diet where protein in both of those diets are matched? For building muscle. For building muscle, no. For losing fat, yes. <laughs> so that's real simple answers there. So ketogenic diets compromise lifting capacity because they compromise glycogen storage. Um, and this isn't just speculation. You know, there is a consistency of studies that match protein, match calories, and run the experiment in resistance trainees um, across uh, different states of energy balance. And the ketogenic diet either gets outperformed by the high carbohydrate for increases in lean muscle or, or lean mass, or it gets outperformed by the high carbohydrate diet in terms of retention of lean mass in hypocaloric conditions. Uh, there are some exceptions to this rule, but when you look at the body of studies as a whole, and Vargas Molina has, has done the work in this area. Um, he, he and his colleagues have a, a recent systematic review. Uh, I think it's a systematic review and meta-analysis on this topic. And um, all of the studies in there, you look at the individual studies, I want to say 75% of the existing studies that match protein and calories between ketogenic and non-ketogenic show superiority of the non-ketogenic diets for both gains in lean mass and retention of lean mass. And so it's relatively inarguable, but it makes sense from both a physiological standpoint as well as a morphological standpoint when you think of higher resting glycogen levels in higher carbohydrate diets. Uh, it makes sense from just looking at what goes on in the field with, for example, physique athletes, bodybuilders, and those sort of things. If ketogenic diets were the way to get leaner than everybody, but you still retain your muscle, then the people doing that would be the elite level bodybuilders, both in the natural realm and the uh, enhanced realm. That's not the case. <laughs> That's not the case. Um, there's been a bunch of great work done by my colleague, Andrew Chappelle, and he looked at natural bodybuilders at the elite levels, the national level, natural bodybuilders, and their carbohydrate intake during prep, during prep is about four to five grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight. So that's roughly two grams of carbohydrate per pound of body weight on average during contest prep. Um, and 
natural bodybuilders, they have to use every possible weapon to their disposal to retain muscle during contest prep. And if they just went linear keto, it wouldn't happen. So during contest prep, they have this high carbohydrate diet, but are potential during that phase, I imagine they're dropping total body they're, weight. They're dropping total body weight. It's typically a low fat mm. scenario. So that, that's another data point then yeah. that would be a kind of mark against the whole carbohydrate insulin model. Oh, yeah. Know, because in, in that context yeah. of yeah. a very, very high carbohydrate diet, where you can imagine there is a significant kind of insulin response from a hormone perspective, my understanding of the carbohydrate mm -hmm. insulin model is that that would be disadvantageous to losing body fat? Uh, potentially, potentially. And and I, I want to make the point, Simon, that there are, there are um, people who do very well on ketogenic diets. And when you're trying to reach the goals that competitive bodybuilders are, are trying to reach, most of the general public just, they don't have those goals. And, and so, um, therefore, there is a wide range of viable carb-fat proportions that can equate to very similar levels of fat loss in the non-competitive population. And so, um, it really kind of does boil down to people's personal preferences. And uh, you brought up the whole insulin, the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, which was made popular by Gary Taubes back in the... Uh, late 2000s is when he really kind of made a splash uh, with that. And um, a lot of that theory, or a lot of those speculations, hypotheses, uh, have not panned out in the literature. It appears that insulin is much more of a bystander than a driver of changes in fat mass. And as you mentioned, this has been made apparent by multiple studies that Equate protein in the diet groups, equate total calories, you run the experiment, and the diets that have a high fat, low carb proportion, they lose no more fat than the diets with a um, high carb, low fat, or if I got that, <laughs> if I got that mixed up or not. But yeah. If someone's new to this, can you just do a high level overview of I guess, energy balance model versus carbohydrate oh, sure, sure. Okay. model. How are they coming at this from kind of yeah. slightly different angles? So the, the kind of the bigger, bigger picture, the aerial view is that one camp is sort of mad at the idea that it is about calories in versus calories out when we're looking at changes in body mass. The other camp, <laughs> um, the other camp, okay, so so the camp that that sort of resents that calorie model says, or makes the claim that it's about hormones. Specifically, it's about insulin. And so with insulin being labeled the, in quotes, fat storage hormone, then which is the macronutrient that elevates insulin the most potently? Carbohydrate. Therefore, since carbohydrate stimulates the greatest amount of insulin release. It's the perpetrator. Then, yes, <laughs> carbs are the perp. <laughs> and so therefore, carbs are the bad guy. Ergo, the solution is avoid carbs. So th this is the essence of the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. And over time in the literature with guys like Ludwig and stuff like that, they're 
getting a little bit more refined with their position on that saying, okay, well, it's, it's more about refined carbs, not necessarily carbs specifically. But when, when it comes down to it, it does come down to a, uh, that critical linchpin there of, of, of insulin being the, the factor, which is still incorrect. And this, once again, this has been demonstrated by studies that rigorously equate calories and protein between the groups and the high carb versus low carb diets. There is no significant difference. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the uh, high fat, um, rather the high carb, low fat conditions have actually outperformed the low carb, high fat conditions for body fat reduction. And that this has been seen in in Hall's work, uh, Kevin Kevin Hall's work, and uh, but it makes sense though if you can equate these conditions calorically and protein wise, you're looking at carbohydrate and fat differences, and when you think about what happens in and, and we can we can run the the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis, we can run this experiment in hypercaloric conditions. We can run it in eucaloric conditions. We can run it in hypocaloric conditions. It's been done in hypercaloric conditions where they can where they compare an overfeeding of a carbohydrate dominant diet versus a fat dominant diet. And naturally, with overfeeding studies where you're hitting people with a thousand calories above and beyond maintenance, you can't ethically run that study for very long. Right. But just to be clear, these two arms of the study, they're equating for total energy. That's correct. But the energy is coming from different macronutrients. So that's correct. Protein's the same in both contexts, but one arm, they're getting more energy from mm -hmm. fat and the other arm, more energy from carbohydrates. That's right. So, so you, you picture right. two diets that mm -hmm. are totally equal in composition. And then one diet, you stack a thousand calories on top of it in the form of carbohydrate. And the other diet, you stack a thousand calories on top in the form of fat. So is one of these macronutrients more inherently fattening? Yes. <laughs> and it's the fat, not the carbohydrate overfeedings. However, in aggregate, there's really not much meaningful difference. Interestingly, um, in the, uh, in the fat storage between the over fat, uh, the fat overfeeding and the carbohydrate overfeeding, but it leans towards the fat overfeeds resulting in greater stored fat. And my point about even bringing that up is that if the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity were even remotely true, we would just see the carbohydrate groups gaining more fat because of insulin. So that doesn't even happen. Hey friends. The scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers 
for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. I mean, I'm asking you to speculate here a little bit, but with with all of those data points that we have, why is it that Gary Taubes and others my understanding when I sort of read their work and listen to them speak about this is that they're of the view that upstream to this positive energy balance is these, you know, highly refined carbohydrates, as you say, which is a bit of an update on the on the model more recently, that trigger this insulin response. And this changes the kind of hormonal milieu or status of the of the person, the environment. And as a result, the energy that they're consuming is preferentially kind of shuttled towards fat storage, not metabolism. So my understanding of what they're saying in this context is that you know you have this high carbohydrate diet, your body starts to preferentially store that energy. It's not available to be metabolized. And as a result, your body still requires energy. So your hunger goes up so that you consume more. You're kind of in this like negative energy state while being in a calorie surplus why why are they attached to that position if there's all of these trials looking at comparing fat to carbohydrate rich diets and the outcomes that we really care about body weight that are not showing a significant significant difference that is a great question and i would speculate that it's very hard to let go of a simple answer like insulin i think it's a honestly i think it's an ego thing um the 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 special in quotes special thing about ketogenic diets is when you take a group of subjects who's overweight or obese and they've been subsisting on the standard western diet pattern you put them on a ketogenic diet and Kind of the beauty about putting somebody on ketogenic diet is its simplicity. Avoid carbs. Go. (laughs) So all you're doing is consuming protein and fat-rich foods. And so what happens to, you know, unintentionally on the part of the dieter, they're finally consuming enough protein now to support lean body mass and they're getting a potentially higher thermic effect out of the diet and they're getting more satiety as well. Uh, their options of these highly processed, highly engineered, hyper palatable junk foods, that's out of the picture. I mean, I mean, you're cornered into avoiding those types of foods on on a ketogenic diet. Now, as a, adding a little wrinkle here, if you're eating like bacon cheese bits, that can be considered hyper palatable as well in the savory department. But okay, so with the ketogenic diet, they're finally consuming enough protein. Their variety of junk foods comes down to, you know, a very narrow margin. So So calorie density comes down a little bit. Calorie density comes down. And what happens by default, if you look at what happens in these ad libitum ketogenic diet studies, 
the subjects end up consuming anywhere from on the low end, 400 calories less on the high end, like 900 calories less. And this is spontaneously, not purposely. When you go from a standard Western diet to a ketogenic diet, and that's where the in quotes magic happens with keto, because it's a simple prescription, just avoid carbs. I mean, it's not complicated. People get on it. They lose a lot of weight, a bunch of health markers improve. They lose, lose body fat. They feel better, obviously, because of this stuff. But the big problem with um, ketogenic diets is when you look at the adherence data, the majority of the subjects in these studies at the six and 12 month mark, they're already consuming double and triple the originally assigned amount of carbohydrates at baseline. So if they were assumed a ketogenic diet, 50 grams max at baseline, then at 12 months, they're consuming 150 grams of carbs. So apparently in the general population who's not, you know, these wonderful zealous carnivore bros that are super dedicated, uh, ketogenic diets are just tough to sustain for the long term for the majority of the general population. So that's the problem with keto. It works wonderfully while you're doing it, <laughs> but most people can't sustain it. And then there's issues, of course, with food selection, fat source, what it does to health and all that stuff. Right. So you're, you're of the position that a ketogenic diet can certainly help someone lose weight. And clearly there's plenty of anecdotes of that, but you explain that through the creation of a calorie deficit. And not insulin. And not some sort of magic Just change in hormones. Let go status. of the insulin thing. Right. It's... People end up consuming fewer calories. I think if Gary was here or someone from that camp, they they might push back on some of those early studies that we were talking about. And and often I hear people bring up this idea of adaptation to a to a, a keto diet. But then I always find that hard to reconcile with the longer term weight loss trials comparing low carb to high carb that don't seem to see a significant benefit even at like the 12 month kind of mark like diet fits for example so uh how important do you think this idea of keto adaptation is and is it blurring potentially blurring any of our understanding of this topic yeah the keto adaptation topic is interesting because you would first have to define what is keto adaptation what happens what physiological process would characterize keto adaptation. And so you can look at a maximal degree of circulating ketones being part of what keto adaptation is. You can look at a maximal level of fat oxidation from, you know, the convergence of sources, but typically mostly the dietary fat that you're consuming on, on keto, on keto. And so, okay, maximal fat oxidation, maximal blood ketone levels and uh, maximal fat oxidation would, would accompany maximal lipolysis. Those um, are, uh, reduce glycogen usage during training for the, sub, for the uh, research that measures that. All of those processes occur maximally within one to two weeks of a ketogenic diet. So if you're going to point to up, oh, not keto adapted yet, then you have to consider that these processes of keto adaptation, the ones that you can measure, they happen within two weeks of a ketogenic diet. Now there's other 
interesting study by uh, Volek and colleagues, the FASTER study, where elite level endurance athletes, I believe they were cyclists, um, at the six month mark, they interestingly had this, had similar glycogen levels to the high carb group, despite being on a ketogenic diet. So a lot of keto advocates say that there's some magic that goes on with ketogenic diets that takes a really long time to happen. And there's a joke amongst the research community where if ketogenic dieting gets outperformed or you know, matched by the high carb model, the study was just not long enough for keto adaptation. So that's kind of the running joke there. But who knows with, with endurance athletes, who knows what happens after months and months and months of, of keto, but they're still not going to perform at the world class level. And it's still a risk to run keto for endurance. I doubt that this would pass ethics, but <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of a, a study design that could be useful here. Has anyone looked at subjects injecting insulin? who in two different arms, so one arm without injecting insulin and the other injecting insulin, and does that affect either hunger or energy balance? <laughs> oh, and by the way, there, there are exceptions to the, the low-carb rule. Zach Bitter is one of them who did really well endurance-wise. <clears throat> but Louise Burke and, and, and her group, they've done fantastic work, uh, well-controlled studies comparing keto with non-keto and just showing you know, performance impairments consistently in, in the keto group. So um, now your question about actually injecting insulin and the effect of that. What's interesting about that question is that starting the, I want to say the, the late 90s, insulin use um, amongst bodybuilders really kind of brought the level of competition way up in terms of uh, muscular size. So I want to say that around the time Dorian Yates started dominating, um, that that's kind of, it coincided when bodybuilders started injecting insulin. And interestingly, bodybuilders in the 90s are known for having onion thin skin. I'm talking like right here, here's, here's, your, here's your abdominal skin, right, right near the navel. Injecting insulin, man. <laughs> um, I have a friend who who did that and competed at a very high level, national level. Um, Post exercise meal, you know, big big meal, insulin injection. <laughs> Unfortunately, he he got pulled over um, on the, by the cops because he was driving on like maybe over injected or something. Uh, that happened once. It's just pretty funny. Driving under the influence of uh, too much insulin and being too jacked and uh, did not affect body fat loss, obviously. Uh, and, it, and it still is a common thing amongst competitive bodybuilders who have to reach extremes in leanness. And they do that in spite of insulin injections. So even in that case, <laughs> it's questionable. Uh, so what is it then in your view that does explain why there's been an increase in overweight and obesity from, let's say, from the 1950s or 60s to now. I think today it's 70 plus percent of adults in the United States mm. are either overweight or obese. And I think the carbohydrate insulin model that 
that crowd would mostly blame that on the consumption of refined carbohydrates. Uh, and they'd explain that through the model, which we've we've just discussed. And, and in fact, you've probably seen this on Twitter before. Often you see a photo from like the 1980s and 70s. It's like often a black and white shot. It might even be earlier of at the beach and people in their swimsuits. And it kind of sh- paints this picture of everyone being super thin. And then it's contrasted with a photo of people today and you know looking much larger. And, and usually the person that posts that will say, you know, and maybe even show like a, a graph to say, you know, see what seed oils have done, or this is what lowering saturated fat has done, you know, in the 1980 dietary guidelines. So if, if not for the excessive consumption of carbohydrates, if not explained by that, what explains the changes in body composition of adults in this country? I think it's a set of converging factors. And the big players would be the internet happening in the mid 80s. With the internet came a further removal of the obligatory link between movement and survival. Um, A lot more sitting, so a sedentary shift. That occurred right around the time that the obesity epidemic started taking shape. Um, Understudied factors like an increase in alcohol intake at population-wide levels. So certain different differences in types of alcohol, but in aggregate, increased alcohol intake. Um, Certainly the, the, uh, the legalization of cannabis use and its effect on anandamides and the munchies that's that's going we're going to see that's a real thing it's a real thing <laughs> but that that's a recent phenomenon um but like, big picture we're not eating just more carbohydrates we're since the 1970s there is a roughly equal increase between refined carbohydrate foods so re- refined grain stuff flour type foods and added fats. So we have to look at those things together and we can't pick and choose which one. It's them together. Increase in, in carbon fat intake since the 1970s to the tune of oh, about 500 calories or so. And then you see a decrease in both recreational and occupational physical activity uh, to the tune of oh, anywhere from 100 200, possibly more calories per day on average. And in addition to that, um, I think that people are using uh, food to relieve stress, more work stress, more sort of self-medicating, more ritualistic eating, stress eating. And that's probably more prevalent today than it was several decades back. And so when you look at the rise of an increase in hyperpalatable foods, which are typically combination foods of refined carbohydrate and fat, uh, combined with this reduction in both recreational and occupational movement, then you you have a recipe for um, obesity. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, an, another factor 
might be a a psychological uh, sort of a a collective degradation in in psychological health that could drive um, maladaptive eating behaviors mm. as well, uh, particularly in an environment that is kind of set up for you to fail. Yeah, yeah, it's rough. It's it's tough out there. So it's a mix of those things. I've always found it interesting to see people blame the dietary guidelines. Yeah. And then look at the data as to like how many people actually adhere to, mm -hmm. to the dietary guidelines, which is not a lot. Mm -hmm. It seems like the environment makes it very difficult to do that. Do you think if people were able to adhere to say the US dietary guidelines, we would see way less incidence of overweight and obesity? Well, yes, and, and that's actually been demonstrated in the literature. When they put subjects on the <laughs> dietary guidelines, you see improvements in body weight and a bunch of clinical parameters. Uh, and it also turns out well, from survey data that the developed world doesn't even follow the guidelines. And so, so yeah, the, the guidelines are a good start. Uh, we can nitpick at them, <laughs> but... Uh, um, the guidelines have have evolved quite a bit since the nineteen early nineteen nineties food guide pyramid, uh, which lasted until I want to say two thousand five, which kind of became my pyramid, which was this abstract kind of looking thing, and then my plate happened in uh, twenty eleven, and the evolution of those models has kind of been this progressive decrease in focusing on just the the bottom part of the pyramid which was the grain foods so that's been kind of an interesting evolution uh the you know getting getting people off of uh the refined grain types of foods yeah it's still there but there's much less of a focus on it and uh i still think we can nitpick at the guidelines because they're there's, it, it still kind of gives you the impression that the more you avoid fat, the better when there's, you know, certain types of fats that can actually help. Um, and also nobody cares about protein at the, at the government level. So, yeah, I think, you know, at least in the people that I sit down with on this show, it seems pretty evident now that a low fat overall diet is not the best approach from even from a cardiovascular point of view. And that there are certain fats that are inherently beneficial. Yeah, there's um, there's missed opportunities there. Yeah, yeah. So I agree. That's something that you know I hope more people are aware of. The average person out there, mm -hmm. right? Let's let's think about that avatar. So they are overweight or obese. So they have excessive adiposity fat. And would you agree they're probably under muscled? due to the sedentary lifestyle that they're leaving, living and mm -hmm. perhaps not completely optimizing protein. Yeah. Right. So where do, we, where do we start if we're thinking about setting up that person's kind of nutritional framework? And, and before we get into the actual practicalities of that, perhaps emphasize you know, what, what's the problem with a suboptimal body composition? How is that affecting our health or risk of chronic disease why do we actually want to work on this in the first place okay so there's functional um issues 
and metabolic issues with, for example, just, just looking at the muscle mass side of things, being under-muscled. So the, the reason why we would want to focus on increasing and preserving muscle mass and strength, especially as, as people advance in age, is because muscle preserves metabolic fa- function, muscle mass. A lot of the, the, the good stuff that happens within the engine of the body happens within muscle tissue as far as fuel use, fuel partitioning, energy use, all that. Um, the building of strength would cover the neuromuscular side that makes us functional, that prevents falls, prevents uh, you know the, the complications of, of falls later in life. And so you need both of those things. So in order to achieve both of those things, you need proper nutrition uh, holistically, not just protein-wise, but protein and energy and uh, essential nutrition, good food selection, and all of that stuff. Uh, so that's why it is just, it's so important. And if you collect body fat in excess, then this can actually, well, it, it antagonize, antagonizes health in a number of ways. But um, when you carry excess body fat, this can actually impair the process of increasing and preserving muscle as well. And the roots of that are probably, as far as we, we can hypothesize, the roots of that are in a chronic inflammation type of state. Okay, so let's imagine there's someone sitting here with us now <laughs> and they, they want to lose body fat. They've listened to everything we've spoken about so far and they, they have a pretty good grip on where they're going to set their protein intake at. A high-level understanding that resistance training is going to be important. We haven't really deep-dived that. Let's just put that to the side. Yeah. That might even be another episode, <laughs> right? Uh, but they want to lose weight. So how how important is it for them to think about the energy within their diet and how do they, how do they begin that process? Oh, man, it's tough. It's tough. At, at, at a very simplistic level, people have to understand that – no matter what your food selection is, I mean, you can choose the the most heralded superfoods on the planet. You can choose the 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 foods with the most accolades and and the most hype behind them as being the healthiest possible foods. But people have to understand that unless you are burning more calories than taking in over time, you're not going to lose body weight. Um. And so if people understand that from the outset, then they have this vague idea that, okay, I can't eat an unlimited amount of these, in quotes, healthy foods. There has to be some sort of checks and balances system on there for me to eat a certain amount. Now, this can be done purposely or it can be done by default, but people have to realize when I'm consuming more protein, I'm doing it because I'm trying to increase satiety and control hunger. When I'm consuming more, let's say, unrefined plant foods to get fiber, I'm doing that not just for the various health reasons, but also that will default me to eating fewer calories because I'll be more satiated. That stuff will displace the energy-dense type of junk foods that I would have been eating. 
And at the end of the day, at the end of the week, it helps me eat less. And so there are hyper quantitative and precise ways that you can eat fewer calories per day or per week, or there are just a little bit more qualitative ways to do it by eating more of certain foods and less of other foods with the understanding that I'm trying to eat fewer calories by the end of the week. It's totally okay to know that this is a calorie game. And it's totally okay to know for the more sophisticated folks, I'm really trying to lose body fat while hanging on to as much lean mass as possible. Right, so there's a couple of different paths you can kind of go down, yeah, depending on your personality, I guess. Yeah, what's going to help you adhere to this best? Uh, is there a rate of weight loss that we're looking for that you would say is safest or the most effective? Is it possible that if you're losing weight too quickly that that could have a negative effect? Yeah, this has actually been looked at. <laughs> Um, by Garth and colleagues who compared a 1.4% drop per week in body weight with a 0.7% drop per week in body weight. And so, you know, if you do the math on that, it, it's going to be like a, oh, roughly uh, two-ish pounds, two, three pound drop with like one to two-ish pound drop per week. Um, well, more like yeah, more, more like one pound, two, two pounds versus one pound-ish. So the rapid loss versus a, a slower loss. And the slower loss in this particular population who were athletes, were lean athletes, they preserved more lean body mass with the slower rate of weight loss. Um, I did a review paper with, with some colleagues like almost nine years ago now where we issued the recommendation of limiting weight loss to... 0.5 to 1.0% of your total body weight per week. And this was within the context of preserving a maximal amount of muscle tissue while losing fat in the contest prep context. And that actually does apply to the general population as well. Um, I think that getting down to a very simplistic heuristic with this most people would want to keep their weight loss to one to two pounds a week. And viewing one to two pounds a week as actually fast weight loss is, is a healthy thing to do. Because I mean, if you can imagine 50 to 100 pounds lost a, a year is, is tremendous. So um, even though in the literature, it kind of comes down to this 0.5 to 1.0% of total body weight loss per week, I think we can even focus a little bit more on the, on the lower end of that. Half a percent of total body weight per week is perfectly fine. And in some of the literature, it shows that quick weight loss at the beginning in the obese population is correlated with greater weight loss and weight loss maintenance in the long term. I still think that if we look at it in terms of percentages like that, you probably, most people probably wouldn't want to lose more than 1% of their total body weight per week as a goal. That's as aggressive as you need to go. Is there such a thing as starvation mode? This idea that you, you, know, you lose a, a lot of weight or you're losing weight really quickly and the, the body kind of fights back by lowering your metabolic rate to kind of preserve body fat stores, energy stores from a survival perspective? Yes. 
but because <laughs> I think that's something that people are scared of, right? Of, of yes. dieting or doing <clears throat> dieting frequently, and are they going to negatively? Mm-hmm. Or are they going to impair their metabolism? Are they going to slow it down? Okay, the the simple answer is is yes, that can happen, but the nuance is the degree, uh, the context in which that happens is pretty extreme, and so. Um, if I can paint a picture of total energy expenditure in the day, okay? So we've got resting energy expenditure and then we've got active energy expenditure. So we've got these these two components. So resting energy expenditure or what would also be called the resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate, um, that's relatively stationary unless you incur some substantial losses in lean body mass. That's relatively static. Now, the active energy expenditure, we can further divide that up into two parts. So exercise energy expenditure and non-exercise energy expenditure. So what typically happens in the weight loss process that people misperceive as the slowing of metabolism is actually a drop in non-exercise energy expenditure or in you know in the nerd circles we call it non-exercise activity thermogenesis or neat so the decrease in neat is something that is insidious and subconscious and that happens behind people's backs and they just think oh my metabolism slowing down i'm doing the same workout and i i you know i'm obviously not not losing tons of metabolically active lean tissue or something out of my metabolism is slowing down but in reality what happens across across most dieting studies is when when they actually measure non-exercise activity, a, a caloric expenditure decrease of two to 300 calories happens in NEAT during weight loss studies. And that goes unaccounted for. So how, do, how does the individual fight back against that? Is it just being conscious of that and then making sure you're... you're moving your body more to make up for these subconscious changes to activity or non-exercise. Sure. Um, um, well, a, a preemptive thing would be to not diet as hard. <laughs> the harder you diet, the, the more severe the drops in non-exercise activity become. And this is apparent in physique uh, athletes at contest prep where when they're not training and doing their prescribed cardio, they're just laying around. They're not doing anything. Um, so, you know, prolonged dieting, severe dieting, all of that stuff. If, if you can um, incorporate diet breaks, if, if you happen to be dieting, we incorporate a diet break once every four to eight weeks, take a week off of the diet. And with some people, it even works to take the fourth week off. How does from that the diet? work from a, a practical point of view? I mean, earlier you said there's kind of like mm-hmm. two avenues someone could go down to to lose weight. Yeah. With regards to thinking about the energy or the food they're consuming, one is getting mm-hmm. very very specific and granular counting calories. Yeah. Okay. So you put your you know you, your body needs two thousand five hundred calories a day, mm-hmm. and they they choose to go into what what deficit would you be recommending? Yeah. Okay. So. Two main populations here. So overweight and obese populations can do well with a more uh, severe caloric deficit. So 
the kind of the catch-all deficit that works for most populations is 10 to 20% below your what you feel is your maintenance. So in that example of 2,500 calories a day, they're cutting 250 to 500 calories. Yep, that's right. And that will, that will apply to people who are normal weight to overweight. Okay, so the obese population, they can go 20 to 30, sometimes 40% below maintenance and still hang on to lean mass and do just fine. Uh, that's just the nature of how the body perceives energy crisis or not. <laughs> so there's much more of an energy crisis if you're doing an aggressive caloric deficit as a lean person than somebody with the stored energy to spare. So if I'm counting my calories, because mm -hmm. you, you mentioned before having a diet break, so every four to eight weeks coming out of that deficit and back up to assume to a maintenance mm -hmm. level of, of calories. Yeah. That's, I guess, quite quantifiable if yes. you're counting calories right. and easy right. to an easy thing to adjust. Let's say though that someone went down the other path. Mm -hmm. They weren't they weren't wanting to count calories to to diet and lose weight. They were going to uh, choose some form of dietary restriction. Maybe that's a, a low carbohydrate diet or a uh, high carbohydrate low fat diet focusing on diet quality, not having, you know, ultra processed foods optimizing protein, all the things that you said that inadvertently will create a, a deficit. How do, how do they adjust their diet to kind of come back to maintenance given they're not sort of counting the calories in the food that they're eating? You can either just simply, uh, well, you're not necessarily on quantitative program. So you can double the size of one of your meals in the day that you feel is the most painful one to be restricting. So it would either be, in most cases, breakfast, dinner, or lunch, or you can add a meal <laughs> to that day during a time point where you feel you're suffering most through, in, in the course of the day. And on these diet breaks, when you employ one of those types of models, there is an understanding that taking a diet break doesn't mean going full YOLO. So, you know, for, for, uh, for the folks who don't know, that means you only live once. Okay, so if you go full YOLO. Oreo, ice cream, all the things, burgers. Two-handed diet, seafood <laughs> diet, I see it, I eat it. That's not a diet break. A diet break is the understanding that you're going to basically return to non-YOLO maintenance levels, like pre-dieting right, levels. So it's a very considered, it's not a permission slip to go and just eat whatever <laughs> right. you want. Right, that's, that's correct. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. What about fasting as a, a tool? You know, shortening the, because we've spoken about sort of changing diet quality and dietary restriction through modulating macronutrients, spoken about counting calories. What about this third option of saying, okay, currently you eat within 14 or 15 hours, which I think is what the average person eats across, basically waking up, eating, and then eating all the way to going to bed. For some people, will restricting the number of hours they're eating be enough to get into a calorie 
deficit and and lose a significant amount of body weight that's comparable to say counting calories and creating that calorie deficit very intentionally i'm so glad we have another two hours here <laughs> for, to, for me to get into this but um <laughs> clearly we're we're going to need to carve out time for a part two <laughs> so the fasting intermittent fasting thing um really picked up steam within the last decade and the research on intermittent fasting has been very vigorous and prolific over recent years because we're finding out that it's an effective modality for both weight loss and, and controlling or mitigating excess weight gain. Um, we don't have to quantify so precisely what's being eaten in terms of calories and grams and things like that. Uh, one of the beautiful things about intermittent fasting models, whether it be, there's three main ones. There's the alternate day fasting model. There's uh, the twice weekly fasting model or what people would know as a 5-2. And then there are the time-restricted feeding models, which are the within-day fasting models of four to 10, usually four to nine-ish hours feeding window um, that you restrict yourself to. And it can either be early time restricted feeding or delayed time restricted feeding where you're basically, you know, skipping breakfast ish. You have all those, those variants at, at your disposal. Um, a unifying, uh, I guess, benefit or, or, or feature of the intermittent fasting models is that you can do them ad libitum and they still work. In other words, you don't have to restrict consciously or quantify everything during the feeding phases. And as long as you execute the fasting phases, most people will tend to incur a caloric deficit by the end of the day or the end of the week. So um, that is kind of the beauty of uh, intermittent fasting. Um, now, there, there are some caveats to it as well the alternate day fasting model tends to not be great at preserving lean body mass. So there are greater lean body mass losses seen with alternate day fasting compared to say time restricted feeding. Is that because that amino acid circulation is like a 24 hour pull? Yes. And that yes. kind of expires. That That's a great way to put it. Mm -hmm. okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. When you think of the maintenance of muscle mass, as this dynamic balance between muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown, then there appears to be somewhat of a unrecoverable level of a muscle protein breakdown on the fast. Right, so phase. protein feeding, I mean, this seems common sense, but mm -hmm. it, it really has to be considered on a 24 hour sort of basis. You can consider calories across a week, right? Yeah. But what, what I'm hearing from you is it would not be equivalent to let's say you know over a week you're you're uh, consuming x amount of protein mm -hmm. it would not be equivalent to consume that amount in a five-day period with zero protein on the other two days as it would be to consume that over seven days theoretically yes unfortunately we actually don't have the studies to confirm this but um, from what we know about muscle protein synthesis response, we can boil it down to what you want to do is maximize muscle protein synthesis per meal. And this can be done uh, 
When you consider the time course of muscle protein synthesis and the limitations of the rise and fall in MPS, you could probably do it at least four times in, in the course of a day. You could probably maximize muscle protein synthesis. And um, what my friend and colleague Brad Schoenfeld and I did, we looked at all the literature. And since we're being practical, <laughs> we boiled it down to 0.4 to point, roughly 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, which would maximize the short-term anabolic response or maximize muscle protein synthesis per meal with that dose of 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram, which is roughly 0.2 to 0.25 grams per pound in terms of protein feeding per meal that maximizes the anabolic effect. And if you do that four times in the course of a day, you'll be consuming 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein um, per kilogram of body weight. And then you'll be hitting that total. Okay, so back back to our avatar here. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're optimizing protein intake. This is within the context of someone who wants to lose body fat, fat, but build muscle or preserve muscle tissue. So we're optimizing the protein intake. Mm -hmm. We're thinking of a strategy that works for us to somehow create a calorie deficit very mm -hmm. intentionally and quantifiably yeah. counting yeah. it or down one of those other paths. Mm -hmm. Is that what flexible dieting is? Does that sort of just encompass all of that, these different options and ways of kind of going about it? That's, that's exactly what it is. It's individualizing the approach. Um, and also, you know, for everything from macronutrient proportion to the approach to setting the deficit. It can be linear, it can be nonlinear. It really is a personal preference thing. Is this idea of flexible dieting, is it often conflated with just eating whatever you want? So even in that in that context where you're not saying that's a permission slip to eat, you know, to get those macronutrients from whatever source, because I imagine the quality of those is going to influence their ability to adhere and stay in a deficit. For sure, diet quality can influence adherence um, in the sense that it influences satiety, and diet quality, of course, it can influence long-term health. So um, you have to pay attention to those things to bolster long-term health and the ability to stick to the diet. Um, hanging on to muscle tissue, I, I want to reiterate that it's a different game than, than, than trying to maximally build muscle tissue. So as long as you're getting your total by the end of the day, then the distribution of the constituent doses, uh, you know, get it in any which way but lose. Some people will get it in over the course of two meals. Some people will get it in over the course of four, five, six meals. Honestly, it does not matter unless you are either a recreational or competitive type of athlete whose main goal in life is to gain a maximal amount of muscle at a maximal rate, in which case you would employ this specific distribution tactic of what comes down to roughly 25 to 50 grams of protein uh, at, at a pop. Right. Yeah. I've had a few different perspectives on my show join me to talk about uh, protein. Volta Longo, mm -hmm. Stu, yeah. um, Chris Gardner, and Don Lehman, for example. Mm -hmm. And there's been some different perspectives on total protein intake, what's optimal 
from a long-term health point of view. Yeah. So if someone's listening to this and thinking, okay, I, I understand what Alan's saying here regarding optimizing protein intake for body composition mm-hmm. to assist with, with weight loss and satiety and to also help with preservation or building uh, muscle mass, both from a metabolic point of view and mm-hmm. from a strength point of view, mm-hmm. two things that you mentioned before. But hang on, what if we look at a population like the Okinawans in Japan? They seem to be doing- My people, just kidding. Pretty good. And they're living long, healthy lives. They're not calculating the amount of protein. They're not consuming 1.6 grams per kilo. They're consuming much less than that. Do we really need to place this much emphasis on protein? There's always ways to optimize things. I would love to see Okinawans uh, preserve their muscle mass and strength for even further into into old age. I, w- I would like to see Okinawans uh, stave off frailty for longer. Uh, I think that can be accomplished with more protein. But the you know the way that they they live that really enables their longevity is a lot of the psychosocial factors in their lives that um, enable a really positive um, positive existence that they are very productive and they feel very integrated family-wise and work-wise. And um, I think that has a, a really big impact on, on longevity for, for that particular population. But bro, if we could set up a couple gyms in, in Okinawa, and get a little bit more meat and bone density on on the the, the elders. I think that they would. Who knows? They may even live to one fifty. <laughs> um, so I, I still think that there's better ways of doing that. Um, protein source can come into play as far as the health thing goes. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's double yeah. click on protein source. You and I have had some some back and forth on that over the over the years. Mm-hmm. So I think I have a quote from yeah, you sure, sure. that I thought kind of spoke to this. Every meal is a short-term investment in how you feel and perform, mm-hmm. a mid-term investment in how you look, and a long-term investment in your freedom from disease. So if we yes, think about the yes. long-term mm-hmm. perspective here, how how does choosing where your protein comes from do you think sort of play into that or how do they intersect? Coincidentally, the latest publication I've been involved in is a systematic review on the effects of soy protein on muscle adaptations and and health parameters. So uh, I make a joke that at the close of, of, of doing that project, we can no longer use the word soy boy in a pejorative context <laughs> because it turns out that soy just kind of wins at all kinds of things. That's going to be music to the ears of a lot of people and there's going to be a lot of people that hate that. And there's going to be a lot of people that hate that. A lot of people like to wield the, 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 the soy boy weapon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, afterwards we're like, oh, that this is interesting. Uh, soy protein is better than way at uh, mitigating oxidative stress, um, lowering lipid peroxides, you know, uh, even improving blood lipid profile. And the 
concern about soy negatively impacting hormonal status doesn't seem to be there aside from just a couple of really odd case studies where the isoflavone intakes are about 10 times the norm. And so... And the odd, the odd rat study, I saw Paul Saladino put up a... Oh he he put up a video about soy. Yeah. I had to laugh at this because I, I I don't know that a lot of people in his community fact check the things that he says. He sure. gets a lot. He gets sure. away with a lot. He seems to. Yeah. And and I know there are certain people that sort of call him out, but he he cited this rat study the other week as evidence that soy is feminizing. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, here's you know here's a group of male rats that were fed soy, and there was a you know, a, a and increase in hormone levels and he just kind of left it there and i went in and i thought it's a rat study i don't really care about it we have clinical intervention studies where you feed men soy but i'm interested to look at what this study did and what they saw and what was interesting is it's very clear it's clear even in the abstract they say the males that were fed this male rats that were fed this soy extract had a reduction in estrogen and an increase in testosterone, <laughs> which is the very opposite <laughs> oh, of what you would funny. expect to see if soy was causing feminizing effects in there. So his own reference kind of refuted him. Oh but. yeah, that's always a bummer <laughs> when your own reference just does you in like that. But yeah, the, there's been a sy- recent systematic review that even subanalyzed the uh, isoflavone doses. And how they affected the these endpoints, um, you know, changes in in testosterone, estrogen, etc. And uh, they subanalyzed doses that were above seventy five milligrams and below seventy five milligrams. And and mind you, it takes a gram of soy protein to rack up roughly a, a, a milligram of isoflavone. So um, even 75 grams of soy protein a day didn't adversely impact hormonal profile or cause, you know, in quotes, feminizing effects. So um, it's interesting, you know, interesting stuff. Of course, way outperformed soy in, you know, in, in, in a handful of studies for acute anabolic response. So muscle protein synthesis. But then, you know, muscle protein synthesis is just a short-term look at what might happen over time with adaptations to training and, and muscle growth. And uh, there's a couple of studies now, um, the first one being by, by Hevia Lorraine and colleagues where the uh, a soy-fortified vegan um, diet was compared with an omnivorous diet. And there were no significant differences in muscle size and strength gain in resistance trainees who kept protein at 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. And the super interesting thing about that study is that the soy supplemented group still had significantly less essential amino acid content. Uh, lower uh, leucine intake. Yes. And so we have to kind of say, hmm. Does that matter once you have total protein at a certain level? Right. And of course, the you know the limitation of that study is they use untrained subjects, and so maybe the resistance training adaptations could have masked any advantage of of the you know of whichever group may have had the advantage. Um, but then you know the the study following it, Montaigne and colleagues, they looked at that. I 
They had creatine as well, which I know a number of people kind of push back on. I, I yeah, if if they didn't if they didn't include the creatine on that, it would be a little less noise in the in the sauce there, and it would have been a little more clean study to draw conclusions from. But um, so, are you of the view stuff. today that once you have total protein at what you would describe as optimal, so we're hitting that one point six grams per kilogram, that the source of that protein, be it from animal or plant, doesn't matter or doesn't seem to matter as much. And can we say that for everyone or is that specific to the kind of like one population? Does that also apply to elderly, for example? Yeah, that's a great, you know, that's a great point. Um, I think we would have to draw those conclusions based on the populations um, that have been studied thus far. So younger adults, not necessarily, not necessarily a, a athletic, um, mildly resistance trained at, at best. And then there's open questions about uh, whether the elderly would do better with animal source protein or with supplemented um, essential amino acids and or branch chain amino acids on top of a pre-existent plant-based diet. So we we don't have that data. I, I would love to see a, a study looking at the RDA for protein, so 0.8 grams per kilogram per day with essential amino acids stacked on top of it. See if that can run with, see how close it comes in terms of muscle growth and preservation with a 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight model. That would be a really interesting study because in acute short-term comparisons, um, there have been some really interesting things seen with the muscle protein synthesis response of essential amino acids dosed at just a fraction of the whole protein um, comparator, even to the tune of, gosh, there was one study showing that three grams of EAAs elicited the same MPS as close to 20 grams of intact protein. There's another uh, recent study showing that six grams of um, of protein with three grams of EAAs in there uh, was equivalent to, I believe it was a 17 or 18 gram dose of, uh, of protein in terms of uh, same MPS. So, um, and actually the 12, gra a, a 12 gram dose of um, six grams of EAA plus six grams of uh, whey protein actually outperformed an 18-ish gram dose of uh, whey protein in terms of muscle protein synthesis. So a lower total amount of nitrogenous matter, but um, enriched with essential amino acids actually elicited a higher muscle protein synthesis response. And somebody asked me, me this the other day. They're like, are there any examples of non-animal proteins having a stronger anabolic response than animal proteins. And to date, I can recall a couple of examples, very esoteric stuff. So there's the famous Babalt et al. P protein study that showed greater muscle protein, uh, greater muscle thickness over a longitudinal period than, than whey supplementation. That's one. And then the other one is the, the emerging mycoprotein studies showing greater MPS than milk protein that's a montane thing and so um 
there's interesting stuff <laughs> coming out of that. Um, but still, uh, to circle back to the question you asked, I still think we need to be a little bit skeptical and a little bit cautious. Right. So one thing that I kind of spend some time thinking on here within this discussion of the importance of attenuating uh, muscle strength and size loss as we age, avoiding sarcopenia so we can stay vigorous yeah. and, and functional. Um, and we're trying to, I guess, also achieve you know, a reduction in risk of, say, cardiometabolic disease. Yeah. And so sometimes when I see the high-protein message, I think, okay, if people go out and do that, does it depend on the source of that protein as to whether they're shifting their cardiometabolic health in the right direction, right? Because, of course, part of improving health span, in addition to uh, avoiding sarcopenia is not having a heart attack, not having a stroke, etc. And at least the majority of the research that I've seen, looking at you know, converging lines of evidence, suggests that swapping, say, red meat or white meat for fatty fish or sources of plant protein and shifting to that more Mediterranean or like the Danish dietary guidelines is probably beneficial from a cardiometabolic perspective. Do you do you have any thoughts on that? I guess when people, with regards to where people are getting their protein from, if they're optimizing it to get to 1.6 grams per kilogram, given that the, I guess the differences in those pro in the protein once you're at an optimal level don't seem to make a huge difference for strength and hypertrophy. What do you think about so overall protein selection from a health span point of view? I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, what you outlined is what the bulk of the evidence shows. Uh, you know, there, there are entire huge communities who all they eat is, is red meat. Some of them just eat, literally eat red meat and salt. <laughs> um, I think that maintaining a certain level of physical activity and leanness can act as a shield against the potential adverse cardiovascular effects of such a diet. But I, you know, if you were to look at the evidence and see where the risks lie and how we might optimize it, um, it really does, it really does not encourage a predominantly red meat protein selection of the diet. Um, the evidence does seem to, in quotes, allow a certain amount of red meat, like in the course of a day or the course of a week, like roughly, what, 70 grams uh, weight-wise, not protein grams, <laughs> 70 gram weight, like so two and a half ounces or something a day as sort of what the health agencies converge upon being, okay, well, that that's okay. You know, you're not you're not putting yourself at significantly higher risk than than people who than people who avoid it. But even even then, you can point to research showing that the risk is still lower when you avoid it. I would tend to default to that guideline for red meat limits being the roughly if you're going to have it, limit it to a total of. Um, you know, 500-ish, whatever, 
grams weight wise or over a week. That's right. Um, which in imperial terms is well, like roughly 16-ish ounces, 16, 17 ounces over the course of the week. I think that's a, a reasonable a reasonable limit. Um, I think that there's a lot of data accumulated now showing that uh, plant-based plant-based proteins actually have have a, a healthier cardiovascular risk effect or, or rather association profile than the animal-based proteins. And, and, you know, we can love our animal proteins, but we have to face the, <laughs> we have to face the evidence, right? Yeah. And, and so, as you say, it's not necessarily an all or nothing play for, for sure. people. Mm -hmm. I guess I just look at where is the current protein intake at? And mm -hmm. I think you've said before, it might only be around one gram per kilogram. Right around there. So, mm -hmm. so if we want people to get up to 1.6 grams per mm -hmm. kilogram, they have to increase their protein you know, quite substantially. And I think at least based on Chris Gardner's research and what he's published, about 70 to 85% of current protein intake is from animal protein. So it seems to me that there is, I guess, room there for the addition of these more uh, plant-based sources of protein. And we could probably throw fatty fish in there as well because the outcome data for that seems pretty similar uh, to, help, to help get to that kind of optimal total protein intake as I, opposed I to just throwing on a lot more red meat and white meat. I agree. And, and I think that, um, you know, even the omnivore members of your audience um, would stand to, uh, they would benefit from having a, a broader rotation of, of protein types uh, within their diet. So not just constantly pounding the, the red meat and the skin on chicken. Um, I think that uh, protein powders are an underrated, underrated tool. In, in the health toolbox, I, I had a bunch of uh, arguments with folks saying the protein powder is not real food. And like, Come on, man. That's, I mean, that that's absurd. Yeah, I think you have to come back to the evidence and does nutrient, compound food, how does it affect how health outcomes? Because before when you were talking about those studies looking at isolated uh, amino acids and some of these different responses in muscle protein synthesis it was immediately popping into my head was well we're going to see a future of new functional foods available that could be really helpful for say elderly populations that that have reduced appetite aren't eating as much food maybe have dental problems and these could be you know very beneficial from a sarcopenia point of view for sure it, it just gets difficult to consume an in quotes optimal amount of protein in some of these subsets of the elderly population who have dysphagia, sarcopenic dysphagia, problems chewing and swallowing, and that sort of thing. And so these types of tools, whether it be protein powders or even amino acid supplementation, those, those things can be potentially a, a, a boon for kind of providing solutions to these problems that, that we know are not going to go away. Coming back to weight loss, you spoke about diet breaks, choosing these different forms of calorie restriction. What's the typical long-term weight loss? What does that look like from any any of these mix of, of kind of dietary 
strategies? How much could someone expect to lose and actually keep off off over the long term, say 12 months or 24 months? You know, the, the general population that's left to their own devices is highly unsuccessful. Um, for weight loss, unfortunately. So the statistic is roughly 80% of the general population will just gain the weight back. Um, and so if, if we can kind of take a look at why that is, it, it's because of the lack of individualization of programs. So if you look at the, just the NIH standard they have a standard 1200 <laughs> calorie diet um, and uh, the, they have a standard 15 or 1600 calorie diet. So one's for women, one's for men. And typically in hospital settings, the 1200 calorie diet is, is prescribed just blanketly and the 1500 calorie diet is prescribed blanketly to uh, men and women respectively. <clears throat> and so the big problem with that, I, I think that when you prescribe a cookie cutter diet that is anywhere from one to 2,000 calories less than what somebody is habitually taking in, the success rate of those diets are going to be very low because um, diet composition and certainly things like eating enough protein to stave off a phenomenon called collateral fattening, which is uh, another rabbit hole. Um, I think that that's a recipe for gaining weight back. Um, But, you know, if we can eliminate just prescribing cookie cutter diets with um, suboptimal macronutrition, suboptimal diet composition, suboptimal uh, capacity for preserving satiety and suboptimal individual tailoring to people's preferences. I, I really do believe that in order to stick to a diet, you have to be consuming the, your favorite foods. And I don't mean your favorite junk foods. <laughs> I mean your favorite foods across the groups. And so when that's in place, then we can look at half a percent to a percent drop in body weight. I would focus on the half a percent over the course of a year. Um, 25-ish pounds, 25 to 50 pounds in a year. I think that that is not unrealistic, but I like the idea of focusing on half a pound a week, 20, 24, 25 pounds a year. Because if you reach your goal in one to two years, then it's like hallelujah, because you spent 10 to 20 years gaining the extra body fat. And so to reverse all that in the span of one to two years. I think that's fantastic. You mentioned satiety there. I'm imagining the person who's listening and thinking, I've tried this, Alan. I have incredible cravings. And so at the end of the day, they finish dinner. They they feel they don't feel like they're satiated. They go to the freezer and get ice cream or grab a block of chocolate and eat the, the whole thing. What do you want people to think about with regards to satiety and feeling full if they're having difficulty with that and they're finding that these cravings are kind of derailing them? Okay. Okay. So there's not a lot of systematically investigated answers to this question. So I'm going to give you my 
perspective, that's going to be inevitably a bit speculative. I feel that, and, and I've observed in the field, that when you can structure a diet to include meals that the, the subject truly enjoys and looks forward to, then their cravings or excess undue cravings and, and appetite actually goes down because each meal is much more of a fulfilling experience. Do you need rather. to be an excellent chef to, to achieve that? Not necessarily excellent, but <laughs> you have to have a working, <laughs> a working capability of it. And so that's why it really does help for people to know how to, you don't have to be a gourmet, but if you can prepare your own food and know how to make it enjoyable and make it stuff that you truly look forward to. If you look forward to each meal and you enjoy each meal, when you're done with it, you're going to be more satisfied, more satiated. You're, you're not going to feel like, okay, I just kind of ate what felt like half a meal that I didn't really like. I'm still freaking hungry. It's time to go rummaging for other stuff. So I think that the lost factor in here, other than, hey, enough protein, enough fiber, and uh, not, not and, and weight loss, that's not too rapid. So you need to find a way to have, maintain, build on the joy that you're getting from your food, even within the context of dieting. So, so yeah, dieting absolutely. is not foregoing the joy. It's not like, let's you know, grit our teeth and just get through this. That, that's not going to be sustainable. Yeah, you can only do that for like weeks at a time. But if you actually look forward to your meals and you can integrate that with a physical activity or training routine that you also enjoy, or at least not dread, then that's kind of the money. Mm -hmm. And that's like the, the, the more, I guess, sustainable path where you're slowly losing weight, you're enjoying your food. But what about the person... You know, I'm sure there's people out there that they just want to eat quite loosely and then every two or three months do a week or two weeks of severe calorie restriction and then kind of go up and down like that. Is that, is that another possible strategy? Uh, it's not recommended. I mean, the, uh, the psychological impact of, of weight cycling is probably the, the overlooked negative. Um, so yo-yo dieting, yeah, definitely not recommended. Um, there is a, a culture within our fitness niche that looks at uh, people's best day for the photo shoot day as being kind of the ideal and people cultivate this false idea in their mind that they have to somehow sustain that. And I think that's, that's a big part of the problem. Are there any, I guess, hormonal considerations with respect to anything that we've spoken about you know mostly to do with nutrition and creating calorie deficit moving towards ideal body composition are there any considerations for the the man versus the woman from a hormone perspective you know often you'll come across people online saying you know all this research is on men doesn't apply to to women and then women get worried that the advice that they're getting is not specific to them um, or 
you know, people saying, you know, fasting, for example, that is going to negatively affect a woman's hormone profile. I'm sure this is a question you get quite a bit. Do, do our male listeners need to think about body composition and weight loss, preservation of muscle differently to, to women at all? There's very little data in that direction, but with intermittent fasting, um, I, I think it could have been an alternate day fasting model. I'm not exactly sure. I have to relook it up. But with intermittent fasting, uh, there was a lengthening of the menstrual cycle, a significant lengthening. I think it was like two, two to three days longer in the intermittent fasting group than the conventional linear dieting group. Which is probably like an eight-hour eating window or something like that. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm trying to remember whether it was alternate day or whether it was TRF. So I'll, I'll have to relook that up. But the, the data in this area is very scarce. And so, but it currently is leaning towards women may want to be careful about taking on intermittent fasting if they have issues with uh, menstrual disruption. Um, as far as men go, now the thing about uh, testosterone levels, men, in men they're about 15 to 20 times higher than with women. And so therefore it's a lot easier to study changes in testosterone with men, which have more profound physiological impacts potentially anyway than, than those changes in women, although some would disagree. But the, the dietary factors that lower testosterone in men are any kind of energy deficit <laughs> for really any, any kind of period of time. Um, the more severe the deficit and the longer the deficit, the lower the testosterone drops. Uh, there's uh, several um, interesting case studies in the literature on um, physique contest prep showing testosterone levels dropping to hypogonadal levels during, during the prep. And it, one, in one case, it happened at, at the three-month mark. They were actually hypogonadal, um, below the normal uh, 300 to 1,000-ish um, levels for testosterone. And, okay, so hypochloric conditions will do it. They didn't all just stop their exogenous testosterone, did they? <laughs> no. <laughs> Try and pass was, a drug test. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this was, this was natties in okay. that one. So, yeah, with the exogenous USA, that kind of goes out the window. But... Um, Another thing would be uh, very low fat diets and very low fat intake to the tune of, uh, well, it doesn't, it's not terribly low, but even 20% shows lower testosterone levels than um, the comparators, which typically are 40%. So is 40% optimal? Uh, not necessarily, not in a universal sense, but it consistently shows higher testosterone levels than the 20%. Um, and this is really kind of independent of uh, energy balance. In the studies that compared the 40% fat versus 20% fat, there was just very little weight loss at the end of the, at the end of the study. So we can't necessarily point to weight loss or you know hypochloric conditions being the factor in the in that particular research. Um, the third factor is an absence or a, a lower intake of saturated fat. So saturated fat tends to have this testosterone uh, preserving and raising capability. Um, populations that uh, don't consume a lot of saturated fat, obviously they're not less healthy 
then the population's consuming a lot of saturated fat. But for the specific goal of um, testosterone preservation, saturated fat seems to have a benefit. Hmm. Um, Is there like feeding trials that have shown that? Feed people more saturated fat and see testosterone go up? Um, I, I do believe so. Well, actually, lo, lo, mm, that's a good question. Because I wonder if those people that are eating less saturated fat, I'm sure that they would have tried to adjust for this, but whether they were also you know, leaner or eating less total calories. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that um, the variables were fairly well controlled. These were studies done in the late 80s when people kind of cared about fat and testosterone. Um, but yeah, uh, higher saturated fat proportion in the diet was associated with higher testosterone levels um, and with the control group being the low saturated mm -hmm. fat diet. Right. And have, so, you, have you seen much about um, the idea that dietary cholesterol also increases testosterone? I've seen kind of mixed reports on this. Mm -hmm. I had Dr. Thomas Dayspring mm -hmm. on the show, who you're obviously familiar with, lipidologist, and he kind of underscored or underlined the fact that all our cells through our body make all their cholesterol that they need, which is then used for hormone production, and that's independent of dietary cholesterol intake. But then I have seen people online, you know, point to different studies and pieces of evidence to suggest that eggs or um, dietary cholesterol itself could increase testosterone levels. Yeah, it does. It does. And, and of course, the, the question is, okay, well, you know, is, is, is what are the pros and cons of that? At what cost are we? And is it clinically meaningful? There, there's an interesting study by maybe Bagheri or Van Vliet, one of those, one of those two, um, where they they did three whole eggs post exercise versus six egg whites. So they weren't necessarily. <laughs> there's <laughs> the, a few main... differences there because fat's also quite different, right? Right, fat was different, um, but the whole egg group ended up with uh, an increase of testosterone to the tune of roughly 239, 240 nanograms per deciliter. It's pretty big. It's pretty big, pretty big. So if, now unfortunately, and I really should contact the authors on this, I, I would like to know what the uh, baseline levels of testosterone were. Because I don't know whether that 239 NG per DL increase represented going from lowish to normal mid or whether it represented normal mid to you know jacked and tan yeah so um and also i guess we can't lose you know side of the forest for the trees here that that's looking at a change to one hormone it's not necessarily the net effect of that right. food or that that food strategy on your overall health right it's a single parameter but interesting but interesting yes what about supplements? I mean, we've, we've spoken about protein. I know you're an advocate for creatine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but are there, what supplements would you want to, to kind of point people's attention to that could be complementary to these dietary strategies to help improve body composition? It honestly comes down to creatine <laughs> when we're looking at improving uh muscle size and strength and coincidentally i was a collaborator on a systematic review looking at muscle thickness specifically with creatine seeing these disappointingly small increases <laughs> in muscle thickness as a result of creatine 
but you know in spite of of those findings the the fact remains that creatine when you look at across studies compared to the control group it'll increase strength 12 to 20%. Wait a minute. No, no, no. 12% in the uh, non-creatine group, 20-ish percent in the creatine groups. And so that advantage in strength gain almost inevitably would translate to a significant advantage in size gain over time. And not only that, by the end of the loading phase, you're you're still going to get roughly a 2% increase in body weight that's going to come from intramuscular water for the most part and that intramuscular water could give you anabolic leverage at, at the cellular level so over time creatine creatine definitely works are you supplementing with 5 grams of creatine 10 grams how do you do it personally i just do 5 grams yeah, five grams a day. Um, it can be argued that guys who are dwarfing me <laughs> could could benefit from more, but um, the kind of the median effective dose there is five grams a day as a maintenance dose. Yeah. What about this whole class of compounds that are often marketed under the banner of fat burners, and like L-carnitine comes to mind, and other ingredients that uh, I think the the general claim is that they help increase your energy expenditure mm -hmm. and as such can help facilitate a calorie deficit or a steeper calorie deficit are there any sort of truths to this is there any validity any compounds that people can take or look to that will help them i guess burn more energy this is a potentially controversial take okay there are statistically significant advantages of certain compounds um, that are usually based in, in the thermogenic pathways. So even things like caffeine, even things like, uh, you know, green tea catechins, things like that. Um, back in the day, it was ephedrine and caffeine stack when that was legal. Uh, the problem is that by the end of these four to 12 week studies, you're seeing maybe one sometimes two kilograms advantage beyond above and beyond placebo. And so it's hard to justify, okay, even though that's a statistically significant difference, the practical significance of that difference, I mean, it boils down to dieting without the stuff for another four weeks, for four to six weeks, maybe eight weeks. Um, so there, there is a small advantage to it. But making a lifestyle of taking that stuff, uh, the pros potentially outweigh the cons in terms of adverse effects on hemodynamics, blood pressure, uh, you know, just various adverse reactions to the supplements, which are not the most tightly regulated things in the world. Uh, I don't personally recommend seeking out uh, help from a fat burner. Uh, competitors for physique contests, uh, I mean, they... Some of them swear by it, helps me control my appetite, this and that. But for the general population, mm -hmm. I would just say stay away. Right. So keep it simple. With regards to supplementation, protein powder, creatine, probably as complex as it needs to get for most people. Yeah, for body comp, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some people get tied up in 
amino acids, this and that. And some people love their intra workout amino acids, but the evidence basis of that is, is just really questionable beyond what sort of placebo effect it's giving them during training. Yeah. If it makes you train harder. Yeah. Because you think it's working. Sure. Then Shake it will that work. thing up, man. <laughs> Beta alanine does that for me because I feel the tingles. Yeah. I actually then feel like I'm, I'm kind of more inspired to work out with a greater intensity. Well, there's, there's a case to be made for beta alanine picking up where creatine kind of starts waning on the energy continuum. So you have strength, power here, endurance here, and beta alanine will kind of cover you here where creatine starts coming down right here. So there is actually a pretty, uh, pretty solid scientific basis. If, if your training has an endurance element to it, you, you can use creatine and beta alanine in tandem has been seen successfully in the research. So we've spoken about protein, fat, carbohydrates. The fourth macronutrient is alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> so in the pursuit of improving body composition, how important is considering alcohol? Is, is alcohol something that you think derails a lot of people? Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's because a subset of the population gets addicted <laughs> and um, bad things can happen with any kind of uh, substance abuse or addiction. And so with alcohol having addictive potential, we can take about 10% of the population, the general population and say, I wish they knew what would happen before they started drinking because one out of 10 people is going to have some degree of alcohol use disorder. Uh, at least in the developed world. So, um, yeah, uh, from that standpoint. So now, from a muscle protein synthesis standpoint, alcohol appears to impair that as well. So in the short term, alcohol does inhibit these processes towards muscle growth. And um, just, just from a, a dietary compliance type of standpoint, Alcohol has a, in quotes, disinhibiting effect where you just say, ah, oh, screw it. And then you eat whatever's in front of you. And, um, and it contains calories itself. Calories itself. It can impair sleep quality. And, and I'm talking about excessive amounts. Across the literature, one to two drinks a day doesn't seem to hurt most people who don't get addicted. But, um, Beyond that, you can impair sleep quality. And when you impair sleep quality, you do a double whammy of increasing your appetite and cravings for hyperpalatable foods. And you decrease training quality when you're hungover and trying to recover from a training session that you didn't just skip because you're hungover. So, yeah, I can attest to those changes in appetite with sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. Last night I had. <laughs> I had a fire alarm going off in the building next to me. So uh, if anyone could notice that I was a little bit tired today, that's why. But I, <laughs> Alan's done all the heavy lifting, so good. Made, made my job uh, nice and easy. Good, um, good. You stopped drinking in 2018, was it? 2018, yeah. Mm -hmm. What motivated you to do that? Oh, career and life disaster. <laughs> um a good reason yeah my, my drinking got really bad it got i was drinking as just a matter of routine just bottle of wine bottle and a half 
all by myself every night and while while working and still training throughout the week and still training but the training was half-assed um and so it got to a point where it affected my professional and, and personal life catastrophically and so a lot of times you know when you talk to people who have alcohol use disorder or al alcoholics they'll name their, their their rock bottoms and so my rock bottom point was in 2018 and that's when i said you know what <laughs> there are so many things in life that you are enslaved to that you can't just leave behind there's so many things in life that you have to do this is something that i don't have to do and so um i just left it uh yeah ne never look back now I have to say that um, not everybody needs to go cold turkey with quitting alcohol. Some people, and, he, and this is even reflected in literature, where um, alcohol dependence is not severe and therefore people who can actually go on moderation programs. Not everybody has to quit cold turkey. But in my particular case, I decided to quit cold turkey. There's an interesting thing about alcohol and self-awareness. I think that the way that you come across to others has everything to do with self-awareness. And I think situational awareness is super duper important if you are in the workplace as a public figure and you know, all this. And there's different degrees of, of situational awareness. And in military training, there's the first degree of situational awareness is being able to identify the objects in, in your environment. Second degree of situational awareness is knowing what those people or things are doing. Then the third degree of situational awareness or situation awareness is being able to predict what's going to happen in the future, depending on what is going on in the environment. So alcohol, you don't even have a first degree of situational awareness and you can be screwed, blued, and tattooed, bro. You know, so that... Uh, that those are some things to consider, you know, above and beyond um, just the health effects of alcohol. I think there's there's some other deeper stuff that deeper trouble you can get into. Yeah, and I think at least the research community is kind of coming to terms now with the fact that from a health stand, zero alcohol is best. I know it was kind of debated for a while and people spoke about resveratrol and <laughs> almost tried to convince ourselves that some alcohol is beneficial. Um, but at least the latest scientific kind of advisory papers and positions that I've seen are now making it quite clear that if you don't drink, there's no reason to start. My take is that uh, there's going to be a minority of the population for whom drinking is a catastrophically bad life decision. I was one of them. Uh, thank, thankfully, I've been past that with no, no issues for over five years now. But the thing is, you don't know whether you're one of those folks who's susceptible to that kind of, that kind of addiction and dependence. Um, so that's a good point. Now with that, I disagree with the idea that zero alcohol is always going to be healthier. I, th I think that that's an observational data point. I think that um, there are also counterpoints to that observationally in populations who consume 
alcohol regularly. In fact, four out of the five blue zones are regular consumers of one to two drinks a day. But we could run a similar experiment with them where we go and take a group of them and, they, and see they, if they do healthier. even better. <laughs> <laughs> and they live to uh, Can we 150. do that and the resistance training right, maybe right. in parallel? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, but, you know, I, I look at somebody like my wife who can just take or leave alcohol. Doesn't give a crap about it. Can have like one to three drinks a month and be fine. Um, yeah, I... I'm very skeptical about the idea of of saying that zero alcohol, especially if it's something like red wine, that has also, you know, a, a lot of data showing positive effects on various health parameters. I think it can, it can depend on the alcohol source too. So, yeah. Alan, this has been incredibly informative. I knew it would be. <laughs> after five or six years or whatever it's been <laughs> going right. back and forth. Clearly we could talk all day. Um, we'll save some of the other things I wanted to chat to you about for a part two, if I can convince you to come back on. Of course, man. Of uh, course. This has been fun. I particularly enjoyed how I scrapped my outline at the beginning and we went down this bro, bro path of protein. Oh my God. <laughs> I had planned to talk yeah. about protein much later, but uh, front and center it is. Tell us quickly about your monthly research publication, the AARR that you put out. You know, I've subscribed to it and find it really informative. Thanks. Let everyone know what you're up to there and um, if they subscribe, the kind of thing that they will be getting on a monthly basis. Yeah, sure. I started my research review in 2008, so it's going to be 16 years come January that I've been doing this every month. Uh, I spawned a bunch of emulators who do a great job. My my peers, my students, um, who've adopted the model now. There's got to be like five or six other research reviews circling around there. I'm very happy to have pioneered that model, but a lot of people don't even know it exists because I don't toot my horn enough about it. So um, it is a monthly review of the research where I talk about stuff that myself and my community is most interested in, typically having to do with Improving body composition and health and um, exercise performance, and it's uh, it's my baby. I mean, I've, I've been at it for a while. A while. Yeah. Well, you, as I said at the outset, when I thought about this topic, you were right at the top of that list, and, and I think the AARR and just following all of that information you've put out over the years is a, a big reason why you come to mind so clearly with anything related to health, fitness, body composition. So I think you've done a uh, really great job there. I appreciate that, Simon. I'll put a link to that and then a link to your book, Flexible Dieting, in mm -hmm. the show notes, link to all your socials, all that stuff for everyone to check out. Thank great. you so much for joining great. us. Thank you so much. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.